Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 117 of Real Blend, a podcast that's counting down the days until Taika Waititi is fired from Star Wars. My name is Sean O'Connell, the managing director here at Cinema Blend, and we have a lot of great news to get to this week. Finally, uh, developments on projects that we're really looking forward to, uh, some shifting around the release date calendars, and a fantastic fantastic interview with the great Michael Madsen, who shares some incredible stories from his time in Quentin Tarantino's universe. Um, but in order to get to that interview, I need to interview the, uh, introduce the guys who spoke to him this week, starting with the great Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hi, Kev. Hi, Sean. And also, we got to thank Jake for the Michael Madsen interview. He's the one who got that hooked up for us. So, And it was, it was a real pleasure to be able to speak with him. And we're going to get into the details of it. But uh, if you're a Tarantino fan, please stay tuned to this episode because I think there's a lot of gems in there you're going to like. He even hit you guys with some stuff you didn't know. And yeah. I'm talking about the razor that cuts the ear off. I had Is no idea. That? Late, no, had no idea. It's used later in the Tarantino universe, and I had no clue that that was a thing. Yeah, I had no idea. And like honestly, that was a really cool thing. And, and Jake and I can get into it as we get to the interview. But just the, the idea of him, he was so grateful just to tell these stories and talk to us about movies. It was almost yeah. as if it was cathartic for him to just tell the stories, even though he's told them before or if he has or hasn't in that detail. It was still just kind of I almost felt like. We were helping him a little bit. Well, no, yeah, he said something at the end of the interview, and I don't know if it makes the cut or not, but he's basically, when we were thanking him, he basically said, like, I love telling these stories, and so it's nice to have someone to tell them to. Yeah. And it was just sort of like he genuinely really likes, yeah. I, I think he's incredibly proud of his work with Quentin Tarantino, and I think, you know, it, we, he, we gave him, uh, you know, an opportunity to, to geek out with us a little bit. Uh, yeah. Kevin's right. Jake has been crushing it in terms of just getting people to come on to his uh, his Zoom interview. So Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Uh, hi, Jakey. Jake got Don't. John Boyega, uh, got Madsen before this. And then when he gets these people, he also says, thankfully, uh, hey, I got a podcast. And if you want to come on and talk even longer, uh, this is a great opportunity for you to do that. So Seinfeld is coming uh, on the show soon. Jake, is that what I'm is that what I'm taking away from this? Gabe said no. Oh, damn it. Come yeah. on, Gabe. Gabe, Gabe, Gabe said that like if he did something successful in his life that he'd be yeah. good for the show, but unfortunately said, not. That show's so old. No one talks about it. No anymore. one cares. <laughs> uh, Move right. on. Uh, plugs. Uh, I want to remind everybody we have a community page over on Facebook. Uh, obviously, there's a ton of stuff going on there in the Blender family. It's growing every single week. Uh, new members joining it. So head over to Facebook and search for the Real Blend podcast community. Um, as you can tell, we are recording these on video now and posting the full shows onto Cinema Blend's YouTube page. We're also breaking out the individual interviews uh, and putting them on YouTube as well, too. So you should be able to get a, a separate uh, clip or download of the Michael Madsen interview at some point. And if you go back through, we have a playlist on that YouTube page, I believe, Gabe, playlist on the YouTube page for Real Blend, um, so that you can go back through and find our old shows and old interviews as well, too. Uh, and then, of course, all we're available wherever all of your favorite podcast apps are available. Um, we have one last week, or this is the last week, or a few more days left for our shirt. Um, we put together a shirt. It has an exclusive uh, original design, a Real Blend logo, and the silhouettes of the four guys uh, in the show. And we created the show, uh, created, created the shirt specifically for uh, the Will Rogers 
Pioneers Assistance Fund. Um, obviously, the show is completely rooted in the fact that we adore going to the movies. Uh, we're constantly talking to the people who bring us to the movies with their films, and we wanted to do something, uh, whatever we could do to help out uh, theater employees who are struggling during this time. And so we found the Will Rogers Pioneers Assistance Fund, um, designed this shirt, and all of the proceeds uh, from the sales of this limited design t-shirt are going to go to Will Rogers Pioneers Assistance Fund. Uh, so far, so we set a goal of 50 shirts, blew past that, set a new goal of 100 shirts. We have managed to even go past that. Um, and so this ends on May 8th. If you haven't yet had a chance to get a shirt, you've been meaning to get one, you've been putting it off, uh, please grab one soon because it ends on May 8th and all of the proceeds go to an amazing cause. Like I said, Will Rogers Pioneers um, Assistance Fund. We will have a link to the show in the description here. Uh, if you're on your podcast thing, go to the description of the show. If you're watching us on YouTube, we'll have it down below in the description paragraph too. So follow that link, grab a shirt before they run out because we are not going to have this design available uh, anymore after that. You guys got your shirts, right? You guys grabbed them? Yeah, yeah, I did. Oh, and yeah. you know what's great is how many people donated extra. They bought shirts and then donated a little, uh, you know, through a few extra shekels um, toward the cause, which I thought was really fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's what Lauren and I have been doing. We've just been buying shirts and hoodies that uh, where the money goes. Like, this is what I'm wearing right the now. One now. The, I love this, the one you're wearing now. This is the Arnold one. It says, don't be an ass, stay inside. Um, He's got his two we, donkeys. Yeah, and like, <laughs> honestly, it's, 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 it's Lulu. And then Lulu. I can't think of Lulu and the other one. I can't think of what the this is Lulu. Uh, this is Lulu. <laughs> uh, no, but it it is funny because like these are awesome. I wear them all the time because yeah. I'm holding me. I wear like a dress shirt on the air, but but they're amazing. And knowing that the money for this went to charity, it's the same thing with our shirts. We're not making a single uh, dime penny off of them. They're all going right to charity. So uh, it, it means a lot to us. And we're you know we're doing this because we care and we want to help the film industry. It's that that's really what it all comes down to. I also can't wait to see once the shirts get shipped. Now, I don't think they get printed until after the campaign is over. But once you guys start to receive your shirts, uh, I need to see pictures of you guys wearing them uh, posted to social media. And we'll blast them across the Real Blend page and our own individual accounts. So make sure that you share yourselves wearing Real Blend merch. Because I'm just psyched that there's over 100 people who are yeah. going to have Real Blend t-shirts. Like shirts that uh, have the name of the, sh of the show that we created out of thin air. Uh, are going to be uh, uh, worn around all of the amazing places that you guys are from. So and I'm used to sending wearing. you shirts or like pictures without a shirt on. So now I'll, I'll finally send you a picture with a shirt on. <laughs> yes, please. That'll be. And a, the shirt you're wearing is like you can wear it with pride because like I, I, everybody who wears our everybody who listens to our show loves film, and yes. you know that that went to a good spot. It's kind of a it's a it's it's like a win win for anybody who gets it. I love it. Okay, so yeah. we just celebrated uh, May the 4th be with you, uh, and we're uh, talking about all things Star Wars, and thankfully there's been some Star Wars news to get to, and thinking ahead, uh, we created a weekly poll last week that did not go the direction that I thought, that I just assumed it was going to go to. We asked, uh, what is the best Star Wars lightsaber battle? And I consulted with Jake because he's the Star Wars expert around here. And he gave me the four that he thought would be the best choices. We had Duel of the Fates. And then you changed one of them. From episode one. Well, because it was Gabe the one who recommended the change? Yeah, he did. From and seven then to someone nine. brought up another one, too, that I'll mention. And they said it would have made it a lot um, harder. But anyway, Duel of the Fates from episode one, which is the uh, Maul versus... <laughs> yeah, it's great. And actually, someone who voted for that 
it's that it's specifically the score that that catapults that to there. I mean, it's called. I mean, the like book. the score is called Duel of Fates. I mean, that's even why. Yeah. So the second one was uh, Mustafar, which is Mustafar, 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 yeah. Mustafar um, Obi Wan versus Anakin uh, in their final battle. Well, no, not their final battle. I guess they fight again in New Hope. So um, uh, Luke versus Vader from episode five. Now, there were some people campaigning for Luke versus Vader in Return of the Jedi uh, at the end. That's my favorite one. That's your favorite one? Yep. That's interesting. Interesting. That's actually now, my favorite of the trilogy. Even though know, I think so I'm, yeah. 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 I guess I just don't really like, not that I don't consider that, because obviously like they are fighting with the lightsabers, but I guess like the Emperor is so much a part of that, and it's more of like a conversation. Like they're talking I like, well, like that. Though. I guess they like they do a little bit, and then like there's a lot of talking, and then I do, and then they do a little bit, and then there's like a lot of talking. I guess I don't mm-hmm. really think, but I do love the green. I love the gr- the look of the green, and I love Luke in the black. Yeah, the the green. I, I, it's it's weirdly enough. Uh, I guess it's just a stupid reason. Green's my favorite color, so I, I I've always just loved the green saber. But I also I always felt that that fight had the most emotion to it because of the weight of the characters yeah. as we build mm-hmm. up. Yeah. I mean, I think Empire is ultimately the best of the trilogy. I just prefer Return of the Jedi, even though it's funny. Oddly enough, over the years. I've grown to actually like the end of Jedi more than I did when I was younger. Um, but that scene in particular, uh, that might be my favorite lightsaber duel next to Duel of Fates, weirdly enough. Okay. I think Duel of Fates might be one of the greatest scenes. And, and, and it's in a not a great movie, but I really think that that fight is top, like top five, top seven scenes in star wars i love it's that it's pretty scene. incredible yeah. yeah and so our final choice was ray versus kylo in episode nine and that was the that was the break some people said oh if you would included the episode seven fight between those two when that was jake's initial is that in the, is that in the forest the snow yes, yeah the that's a good one the end. i like when the she, snow the snow was a good ca- was it yeah it, it is really good yes um but i thought luke versus vader in episode five would run away with this because it's the end of Empire, he loses his hand, the father reveal, all the elements that make it uh, a compelling uh, fight scene. Not even close. So, Jake, knowing that that didn't win, what, it's gotta what be is your duel, It's got to be Duel of Fates. It then. is Duel of Fates. I, I would have voted yeah. Empire because I think it's also the most beautifully filmed. Sure. Um, I think it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, but I think we're all a, a sucker for a good John Williams score. Yeah. And, and honestly, like, here's the thing. If you were to say, like, okay, let's sit down on, on YouTube and, and pull up one of them and just watch it, I would probably say, let's watch Duel of Fates. Right. Because if anything, if I'm going to watch that scene from Empire, I'm going to say, well, let's just start Empire from the beginning. I'm not going to say, let's start Phantom Menace from the beginning. The thing that's most badass about Duel of Fates is that they pause in the middle of it. Yes. <laughs> they come Whenever to a place that, where they have that to stop. There's that weird, inexplicable, like place where they can't fight in between yeah they yeah. all just kind of and like ray parks just like walking back and forth like a like a tiger or something <laughs> i do yes. think this is probably cheating and doesn't count um in this particular conversation but i would argue the greatest scene that's ever used a lightsaber in star wars is the rogue one vader hallway sequence yeah no that that's not cool. that's not that's a bad cool. call that might be the great the single-handedly the greatest use of vader and the the greatest use of the saber. I just thought wow. that I just love that scene, and I think that that's probably one of my favorite Star Wars scenes of all time. Huh? And I don't even love Rogue One. I like Rogue One. Does that count though in this in this in this uh, conversation? Well, no, because we said battle, but that okay. is a cool scene. That is also he's very battling, cool scene. but no one else has sabers, right? They all have guns. Correct. Yes, it's him versus uh, uh the re- the rebellion as they escape. Do you basically. remember seeing that for the first time? I'll never forget that. That was the oh, greatest yeah. trick ever pulled. 
uh, that I've seen in cinema because the moment you left the theater, you are so high on that moment mm-hmm. that you almost, I mean, in my opinion, you forget like that Rogue the storytelling was, eh. but I mean, is, I like Rogue One. It's fun. Is Han Solo the only non-Jedi or non-Force positive person in the series to hold a lightsaber? This Lupita's character is Force sensitive, right? I guess she, I guess she hold. I guess she hands Wait, it. Wait, is Finn Force sensitive? Yes. Yeah. He's force sensitive. That's what he's saying. So at the end of uh, Skywalker in Skywalker, when he's going down to the sand, the yeah. thing he wanted to tell Daisy was that he was force sensitive. Oh. I think they should have included that in the movie. Thanks for watching know. my interview. Wait, is that what he said in your interview? <laughs> well, in my interview, we talk about the fact that, that that's because I asked him, I was like, OK, it was revealed by JJ that that's what he wanted to tell. JJ. Ray. Yeah. And oh, so oh, my, oh. my bigger question was, are we meant to infer that Finn is a Jedi or that the oh. idea that more people out there sort of have the tingle of the force. But mm. JJ did confirm it. Yeah. That it, that I, I thought that it was, he was going to say, I love you. Right. That, that's, what that, I, that's what I thought, you know, don't, don't, but then don't. there was also the discussion about Finn and Poe, which people thought he was right. going to say something about that right. there too. Yeah. So I don't, I, I'm glad that, Rise of Skywalker is on Disney Plus. It makes it very easy for me to sort of punch it on. And I've been going through it in, in like 10 minute intervals, Same. 10 minute, 15 intervals. Yeah, it looks um, good. It looks fine. Yeah. JJ can can stage a film. It just I, it just doesn't work. I was sitting there with Lauren yesterday rewatching part of it on, on May the 4th. And I, I, I still I am in the back of my mind. I'm like, how does Sean not like this? Yeah. I, I, I genuinely have fun with it, but at the same time, I also understand your criticisms. Yeah, yeah. and they're not—they're not invalid. Now, I, I almost don't... feel about Rise of Skywalker now that I can because I still genuinely love Rise of Skywalker, and I'm and glad I'm glad that I gave it the, the love that I gave it. But I feel about it the way that I feel about the theatrical cut of Batman versus Superman, where mm-hmm. it's just sort of like. This is yes. a great movie, but I feel like it is chopped to shit. I feel oh, like man. this is not the movie JJ made. It just got chopped all to hell. They and are I, racing through that movie. Yeah. But see, I, I mean, for I, a two and a half hour movie, it still needs to slow down a little bit. Yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah. why couldn't they have just made the last Star Wars three hours long? Because JJ had to revise what happened in eight and fix it for nine and finish the story. I, but, I, but, but, but I'm asking like ago. for more time. Yeah. I want I want it longer, like to yeah. let it. Breathe because because he even said that there was that uh, John Boyega told me that they filmed a scene. He and Daisy filmed a scene where Daisy says, like, I think I've always known that you had the force inside you or something like that. And I was like, right. that because where he reveals what, you know, I guess that the, I, I've been feeling this and I think that I, I might have something in me. And apparently Daisy's like, I've always known I've known since I met you or something like that. Like, I would have mm-hmm. loved to have seen that scene. Like, would it really hurt to have two extra minutes? Uh, Jake, I want to ask you this. Um, now that all nine films are on, so this is relevant because yesterday was May the 4th. We're recording yep. some Revenge of the Fifth. Um, <laughs> and so you're talking about all nine films of the, of the saga being yeah. on, on, on there. So we, I know we've discussed before what orders we should watch them in. I'm, I will always be a four, five, six, one, two, three, seven, eight, nine, just release order. Um, yeah. That being said, if someone were to sit down for the first time and watch all nine of these, uh, one, would you sit down for a weekend and watch all nine? Have you watched all nine from front to back since all nine have been out? No. Before we went to the premiere, I watched um, four, five, and six. No, all, I watched all of them, including Hans, Han, including Solo and Rogue One, in chronological order. I started That's with Phantom right. Menace and made my way all the way to to Last Jedi. I so did you that. did a one through nine, already. yeah. And okay. then, like the next day, because in fact, I even think 
because we had to fly from I think New York to LA to go to the Star Wars premiere. They fly um, now. They fly <laughs> now. And I think I even like watched. I caught the Last Jedi on a plane. And I so, did the like, same then thing. The next day, yeah. Um, not since not since it's been available on on VOD, but um, but I oh. think so. You know, I there, there, you know, there's there's someone in my life right now who hasn't seen um the old Star Wars movies, and so we are oh, going to. That's uh, so I've been trying to have this thought of like. How do we? How do I do this? Like this what is a big. Like this is a big moment. <laughs> do you want to? Well, you want me to send you the the untouched VHSs? Kinda. Do you have a VHS? Uh, I need, you, I need VCR? you to send me. No, I need you to send me an untouched VCR. I think I'm going to start <laughs> with. Um, I think I'm going to start with a New Hope. I think I'm going to do it in yeah. the order in which it came. I out. I think you have to just yeah. skip Attack the Clones. Don't put her through that. Yeah. I know. Come on, just why, why put um, someone through that? Okay, so wait, Jake mentioned flying, and I had a question I want to throw at each of you guys. Um, and then and then we'll get to our interview, because we're going to get to Michael Madsen. And I know people who might see Madsen in the headline want to get to the interview. But They might be mad we haven't gotten there yet. I have been... They're, they're mad, mad, son. Don't get mad, son. Um, I oh, I'm sorry, Gabe. Is that, that, that doesn't meet the bar of wordplay <laughs> on this show? That's not good enough for real blend? So everybody knows who's been listening to the show that um, a white whale of ours is uh, is Nolan. And we've been pushing to get Nolan, pushing to get Nolan. Dunkirk is coming. Uh, Dunkirk hasn't moved off of its date yet. Tenet. Oh, Tenet. <laughs> Tenet but I like hearing you say Dunkirk. You can sorry, say it again bad. if you want. Tenet. Tenet has not moved off his date yet. So I'm going to put this out to you two on the show. If they said to us... Uh, come to LA in July to interview Nolan. Would you guys go? One hundred percent. Yeah, I think it would for me. Honestly, it would kind of depend on like how the world is. That's um, not what I'm asking. That's not what I'm asking right now. <laughs> what are you? What are you asking? I'm asking that if we had to decide right now that in well, July, I, I would just say yes, and then if the world is still in a bad spot, I would change my mind in July. Okay, I see. That's fair. I think that's fair. But you would you would at least consider going. Oh, yeah, I would go. Go, yeah, I would consider going. I just you know I I, I um I because we normally a, to let a, people know we normally fly a lot yeah. to go interview yeah. people and none of us have for a really long time. Yeah, and I, this could theoretically be the first trip that we might be looking yeah. at. Not that this is being offered to us in any way, shape, or form, but I'm just dreaming ahead yeah. that it might possibly happen. Let me yeah. give you a hypothetical. Sure. Same question. Okay. They give us they give us Nolan for an hour over Zoom okay. for our podcast or yes. five minutes in person. Oh, then an Zoom. hour over Zoom. Zoom. An hour over Zoom. Hundred percent. What about Spielberg? It all always an hour over Zoom. It doesn't matter who it is. Sean like, has never met Spielberg. Yeah, I would still do an hour over Zoom. Just an hour to pick his brain. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Okay. On, I gotta I gotta be honest with you, like Five minutes. So I guess we'd fly across the country for five minutes all the time. I don't yeah. know. I, I, um, I, I, so you guys know the building that I live in. I live in a high rise in Chicago. Um, a, a building that is honestly like mostly inhabited by older people. Like it, yeah. it, there's mostly, and I just, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm so like, oh, you know, self aware of, of running into them in the hallway because, um, they all they all want to chat and tell me what they've been watching. I, I wouldn't even get in the same elevators with them. I'm like, you know, you go ahead, you take the elevator. So I think even like Jake the, has I, security like, watch walk him to his <laughs> elevator door. Well, well I had apartment. that long before because uh, I don't like people people speaking to me. How dare you speak to me? Um, but no, I don't think I, you know. I th- so that's why I, not to like put a bummer on the hypothetical, but like that's why I think it, I would really have to like assess the situation because I would not want to 
honestly like endanger a high rise full of people for Christopher Nolan. Okay, well, th- now that is where it gets into the reality of the situation. Right. Of course, I'm, I'm not yeah. going to endanger anyone yeah. well, of my so life. Like, like you guys, like you guys, like yeah. you're in your home, like with with Lauren and, and and Sean, like you're in your home with your family. Like like I, my home is a building of hundreds of other people. You know, what if it's, Tom Hanks texted you right now and said, "Come over and hang out at my place for this weekend," dude? Like Would my mom it? is trying to get me to go home for the Fourth of July. Like if my mom can't get me to go home, Tom Hanks ain't getting me to go anywhere. Jake, there is, that is ridiculous. If you Tom Hanks I, texted you right now and said, "Come hang out with I, me for a weekend in New York," you would one hundred percent. Honestly, I would not. I, yeah, I genuinely would not. I honestly, honestly. All right. and, well, and, and instead of point, hanging out with people like we normally get to do, we've been getting them on Zoom and Skype and all these other. Uh, methods of communication and the latest celeb to join us was michael madsen and it was great because jake got him uh earlier in the week he was promoting this uh pr- pr- promoting soft promoting uh, a viral video of his where he did the um uh, mr blonde dance from reservoir dogs uh jake was uh, smart enough to to get him onto uh zoom to to talk to him about that and then in the process again uh just sort of let it sneak out there they're like hey we have a podcast and we got quentin on uh multiple times you want to come join us and he was so into it, uh, said absolutely set it up. You set it up within a couple of days, uh, and these guys got even more time to do it. So, without further ado, the real blend interview with the great Michael Matz. Uh, Michael, good to see you again, man. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I want to start out talking about the the suits and reservoir dogs, which have become quickly associated with an icon of fashion. Like when you think about guys who look cool, you think of the guys in Reservoir Dogs. And yes, the slow motion walk helps and the music helps. But when you guys put on those suits in the early 90s, when you were shooting, were you aware of how cool you looked? Or was it once the movie came out that you realized sort of the fashion icons you were going to become? Well, um, they didn't have a wardrobe department in the movie uh, and the, and the production. So um, right before, like two days before we were going to start shooting, uh, Quentin got everybody together and he said, listen, uh, when you guys come to the set, I want everybody to wear a black suit with a white shirt and black shoes. And the only thing that they gave us was the tie because he wanted everybody to have the same skinny black tie. So that's all they had. They had five ties for, for us, but we had to show up in our own, our own suit. I had, um, we were supposed to wear black shoes. I didn't have any black shoes, but I had black cowboy boots. So I'm the only one of the guys who who had black cowboy boots because that's that's all I had. So did you guys have to have like replacements because there are so many that like end up like bloody or you know like they're shot up? Did you guys have to have extras? Well, that's why I took my jacket off when I got shot. So because I had about ten, I had about eight squibs on me. That was back in the day when they didn't have CGI yet, and so it's just all a bunch of condoms basically filled with with uh, stage blood and there's a little firecracker on the back of it. So, but you're, you're wired up. So I had all the wires through the, the legs of my pants and then the wires go across the set and you're pretty much stuck where you are until you get shot. Somebody has to flick some toggles to, to blow them up. And so I didn't want to get my coat all messed up. So I took off my jacket. That's why I don't have it on. That's amazing. That's amazing. My suit didn't match my pants. And my jacket didn't go together. They were both black, but they were from two different suits. Steve Buscemi doesn't even have black dress pants on. If you watch the movie close, he has black jeans on. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's amazing. You know, Michael, you're talking about the squibs and, and, and the blood, and I think Quentin has always done a great job with still keeping that practical effect element alive. Obviously, there's some heavy-duty squibs in The Hateful Eight. Uh, you know, there's squibs all over his movies, which I've, I've always found fascinating. His use of blood is very interesting. I was curious when you looked over at Tim Roth laying on the floor in Reservoir Dogs, how were they keeping that going? Were they just Were they just, like, putting new blood down as the day went on? Because it just becomes so much like was there somebody on blood detail doing that yeah it's more it's more blood than than and it could come out of a body <laughs> and there's there's no way that he would have not been dead at that point right. <laughs> but uh, actually you know to get him up and to clean him up and to put him back would take a really long time and we were in a really really tight schedule so once he was down there on the floor in the blood he pretty much had to stay there and after a while, he was actually stuck to the floor. Yeah. It gets, uh, it's like glue, you know? And after a while, it gets really super sticky. And so he was basically stuck on the floor. Whether he wanted to be there or not, he kind of had to be there. Oh. You know, you don't want to get up and go and sit down and come back. And it's just easier to stay there. Me and him actually got stuck together. Um, after we shot that scene, it was over. We were embracing each other in the parking lot behind the warehouse, and we literally got stuck together. <laughs> <laughs> this is the original uh, Matt Damon, Greg Kinnear movie, Stuck on You, right? That was, that was the original. Before. And we realized that we were stuck, and we were going to rip the clothes all up, and so um, somebody came out with a garden hose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they sprayed a hose on us to, to separate us, like, like dogs would, have, you know, when dogs get together, when they're... It's the same theory with the hose, I think. Was the person spraying you with the hose? It didn't happen to be Mr. Wolf from Pulp Fiction when he was spraying down Sam Jackson and John Travolta with all that blood. <laughs> uh, you know what? It might have been Quentin. I, I, I honestly, I don't remember who had the hose, but I do know they had to do that to get us apart. <laughs> it might have been Mike Tristano, the uh, the gun guy, our gun, wow. gun ring. Michael, you have our, the listeners of the podcast can't see, obviously, but over your shoulder, you have a great black and white picture of, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that Mr. Blonde holding the cup like the first time that we see him over your shoulder? Well, it is. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the focus puller measuring me for focus. That's, that's, so you told me a great story last week about why it is, oh, that is amazing, about why it is that you were holding a cup. Because that's such an iconic image the first time we meet Mr. Blonde, and he's just real cool drinking out of that cup. And there's a story behind it that is amazing. Oh, that's a, such a great shot. There's a great story about where that cup came from, and it involves the actor who played Marvin Nash being in your trunk a lot longer than he intended. I was wondering if you could tell that story. Well, you know, he, he really doesn't like me to tell that story because it's so embarrassing, but... <laughs> I actually told that story on David Letterman, and I think he almost hanged himself. Um, he really, but you know, the thing is, is that I don't think it's embarrassing. I think it's funny, and you know, I, I like Kirk an awful lot. He was a brave guy to do that scene. But he, uh, I was in the production office. I was actually asleep on the floor, and because um, we were shooting in the mortuary, that was a real mortuary, and we didn't really have a production office, but one of the rooms in there, I was just napping. And uh, he came in and he said, Michael, uh, and I hadn't even really known him that well. And he said, um, 
He said, you know, I got to ask you something really weird. And I said, what? And he goes, do you mind if I get in the trunk of your car? And I <laughs> said, why? And he goes, well, you know, they're going to use the Cadillac because that was my car. It's a yellow Cadillac. They said, they're going to use your car for Mr. Blonde. I said, yeah, that's my idea. And he goes, well, you know, I've never been in a trunk before. And uh, I just want to see what it feels like. And I said, didn't you ever sneak in the drive-in movies? And, and so anyway, we went outside and, uh, and he was in his cop uniform and everything. And, uh, you know, I popped open the trunk, man, and he climbed in. And, but the thing is, I had a big box of tools in there. And I had some other, like, jack stand and some stuff in there. And anyway, he got in. And then Quentin came outside, and Lawrence Binder was outside, and a couple of people started congregating. They were noticing, like, why is he getting in Michael's trunk, you know? And I said, oh, no, we're just, you know, we're, we're rehearsing, and we're trying to figure out how this feels, you know? And so I closed it, boom, and I... And then I was like, are you okay? And he's like, oh, I'm okay. And I suddenly realized that, well, I never drove around with anybody in my trunk before. <laughs> and so I kind of know how it would feel too, yeah. you know? Yeah, figure out the acting method, you know? Yeah. I was a method acting. Marlon yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brando would have done, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, hey, Kirk, I'm going to drive down the, the alley. And he's like, no, no, no. And I, I, I got in the car, I started it up, and right across from the mortuary, there was a long alley, but it was full of giant potholes, right? <laughs> and so when I was going down the alley, it was a boom, 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 and I could hear all the stuff in the trunk, like, banging around, and Kirk was obviously not very happy. And then uh, I was going to turn around and go right back, but there was a, a dead-end street. It was a one-way street. So I had to pull out and then go on the main the main uh, highway to go back around to the mortuary. And when I turned, there was a Taco Bell. And so I, I just, you know, I would have stopped too, Michael. <laughs> it makes sense. I mean, come on, I was like 33 years old. Yeah. I was a young guy. I was on my first movies and, you know, I, I was, I could hear him back there gaining knowledge from that, you know, <laughs> You were helping him. I was helping him know what it would be like, you see. Michael, do you envision a scenario where the Taco Bell person hears the person in your trunk and calls the police and said, this guy has a guy in his trunk and he's kidnapped him? Well, I, I went through the drive-thru and I, I had to get something. And so I got French fries and, and a Coke. And uh, I had to turn up the radio because he was banging in the, <laughs> in the trunk so loud. I just cranked up the radio. And then, so the thing is, is... When we finally got back, because I had gone a little long, uh, there was a few people in the parking lot that were really worried about what happened. <laughs> so, well, I got out of the car and I went inside to lean on the pole for the camera rehearsal. And that's why I have the soda in the movie. Because Quentin saw me, well, why do you have that? Michael, where did you get that? And I go, well, I, I went to, to Taco Bell. Mm. And he's like, you went there with him in the trunk. And <laughs> Well, so I love that. It's it's great. That's still that's for real. So we'll keep that in the scene. So anyway, when they did open the trunk later, when he's actually seen in there, I think he knew a lot better what it was like because he was super sweaty and he was banged yeah. up the tools and stuff. And, you know, there was no acting required, really. Love it. Love <laughs> you know, that. 
Michael, uh, one of the things I've always wanted to ask you, and I'm sure there's there's no exact answer to this, but I'm just curious what your perspective on it is. So in Kill Bill, Bud talks about the idea of pawning off his Hanzo sword. Uh, and then obviously that becomes not to be the truth at some point in the film. But that word pawn and that word sword become a very interesting thing for an audience because then you go, OK, look at Pulp Fiction when Bruce Willis grabs the sword from the pawn shop and uses it in the sequence with Zed and the Gimp. So I was curious, was there ever any conversation about though? I know they're not the same sword or if they are, I have no idea, but is there, has there ever been a conversation or a coincidence in your mind that those two could be somehow related? Well, I know that he does stuff like that a lot. I mean, that's, that's why my Cadillac is in once upon a time in Hollywood. Right. That's my Mr. Blonde's car. But who's going to know that unless they knew that, you know, because Quentin's not going to announce it. He wants people to find out these things in their own experience, you see. Right. In, in, uh, when I saw Kill Bill in London at the premiere, um, after the movie, Quentin was with me at a restaurant and he said, did you see it? Did you see it? And I said, did I see what? And he goes, you know, when you, when you bury, when Uma's buried in the, in the, you know, did you see it? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, Michael, Michael, the razor. And I said, yeah. And he goes, you know, that was yours. That's the exact one that you used in Reservoir Dogs. What? Yeah. He had kept my prop from dogs and he gave that to Uma to use in Kill Bill to cut her ropes off. That you cut his it, ear off with? Yeah. Is the, is, the, is the razor itself the same razor in the world of the movie or just the prop? No, the prop itself is the same one that I used in Reservoir Dogs. He's, wow. he's, he, he, he does stuff like that. He keeps stuff like that. And he has these wonderful, uh, I got the idea from him because I started keeping stuff too. But he, uh, and I said, well, you didn't tell me. Why didn't you tell me? And he goes, I was waiting for you to ask me. So he figured I would notice it. And I would say, hey, is that, was that my razor from dogs? But I honestly, it never occurred to me that he would do something that cool. But, you know, he's like that. He's, he's wonderful that way. He, he, he rebuilt the video store that he worked in inside of his own house. Yeah. Well, my, my, yeah. My, just based on what you just said, though, about, about asking him a question, like how you didn't actually ask him about the razor, are there things you can, can you go to Tarantino and actually ask him things that you might want to know? For example, the diamonds at the end of Reservoir Dogs. We know that pink runs off with them. Are you, cur- are you curious as just as a person outside of the movie as to what happens to those diamonds? Can you go to him and say, what do you think happens here? Well, he would probably say, what do you think happens? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I wanted to play Mr. Pink just for that reason. Yeah. I wanted to get away with the diamonds at the end. <laughs> I didn't want to get killed by Tim Roth. But, uh, you know, it's conjecture. I mean, you hear a lot of gunfire. And so you kind of figure, well, you know, the cops killed him. He could have got away. But it's, it's up to you to, to figure it out. That's, that's, that's what he would say. He does a lot of little things like that. Everybody's interconnected. When you hear, like, if you watch that um, documentary, the QT8. We loved it. I loved it. There is a lot of explanation to a lot of connections. There's a lot of stories in that documentary about the connections of all of his characters in his movies. From True Romance to Reservoir Dogs to all the way to Pulp Fiction. So it's fascinating because you realize that he had all that stuff in his head. You know what I mean? It's amazing. I remember I went to his house when he was writing uh, Kill Bill, and 
the pages were all over the floor, just handwritten pages, just all over the place. He's like, oh, there's chapter one over there, and there's chapter two over there. And and I, I thought it was cool the way it was handwritten. Yeah, the circle. I thought you circled the numbers and stuff, yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's my father used to do that, like block printing. Yeah. You know, and he's just, uh, uh, his mind, like, when did he find time to write Hateful Eight? That's what I'd like to know. Like, you know, my, Michael, I wrote this Western and uh, got a little part for you. <laughs> somewhere what the hell when did you do that mm-hmm. but it's it's amazing he can crank these things out in a short amount of time god only knows what you're writing that could be anything i hope it's the Vega brothers yes yes so do i um you told me that originally you were going to be playing a different character in kill bill it wasn't originally wasn't going to be bud can you do you, was was the original character can you tell us who it was, or like, was it fully fleshed out, or or what? The, what was the deal with that? I was supposed to be um, was supposed to be a character named Mister Barrel, and I think I was one of the bodyguards of the hate of the crazy eighty eight, because I was going to go to Beijing, and I was going to do a lot of sword training, and I fooled around with the sword a lot, so I knew what I was doing to a certain extent. And Mister Mister Barrel had a, a Lone Ranger mask on the end of a stick. And I would hold it up to my face whenever I sword fight, see? Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that is cool. It was a really cool gimmick. And that's what I was originally cast to, for that part. But then, like, I don't know. I think uh, it was before they left for Beijing, because he stayed in Beijing for like four weeks, and they were only supposed to be there for two weeks. But um, he called me on the phone, and he asked me to come over. And uh, sure, you know, so I did. And. Believe me, when Quentin wants you to come over, you don't waste a lot of time. <laughs> and I climb over the fence because I don't know the gay code. And <laughs> does he really have the 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 P wagon car in his driveway or at his house? Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. He has the Challenger from Vanishing Point. <laughs> Wait, that's one of the greatest movies ever made. Is Vanishing Point? Oh my God, he has the Challenger from Vanishing Point. He has the Black Nova from Death Proof, too. Now, now that I make sense. I didn't know he had the car from Vanishing Point. Jeez. And now he has the yellow Cadillac. Oh, wow. I should have kept it. <laughs> I'm going for it back because you know what? I never gave him the title. So, so you just, he's borrowing it. It's still in my name, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I think the opening of uh, Reservoir Dogs is one of the greatest openings of all time. That shot going around the, the table, the dialogue, the Like a Virgin speech, the tipping moment with pink um i was just curious if you could just take me back to filming that what that scene was like to shoot what you remember like was was quentin tarantino like stopping in between takes directing everybody and then coming back to be mr brown as you would do the dialogue how did that scene operate well just like you said i mean we we um you see it was andre sakula that yeah he made a long chalk mark all the way through the parking lot of the pancake house. Okay. And each one of us individually had to walk the chalk mark, just one, just alone. And you walk this perfectly straight line for however long the shot was. It's a steady cam, uh, a slow motion uh, cam. And uh, so everybody did a different thing. And I'd like, I was like this, I think I did it second. And that's why I got a cigarette. Nobody else smokes in the whole opening scene except me. 
because I was the first one to think of it. See, all the other guys went, oh, I want to smoke, I want to smoke. And he was like, no, no, Michael did it. So, you know, you can't, everybody can't be smoking. So that's that Tim Roth got me back, though, in Hateful Eight when he fired off his gun when he gets shot, because that's what I was going to do. Oh. <laughs> he heard me tell Quentin that I wanted to fire off a shot when I get killed. And Tim got killed before I did. And sure enough, as soon as he got blasted, bam! He <laughs> you know, I said, oh, Tim, you bastard. Right? He stole it from me. I know he did, see? And because when I wanted to do it, I couldn't now. Because Quentin said, oh, no, Tim did that. Now you can't do the same thing. Everybody can't get off a shot. <laughs> I had to just go. I had to just get killed, right? I thought it was much more uh, dramatic to get off a shot, but... Anyway, he got me back for the cigarette thing and the walk. Harvey has a toothpick when he walks, see? People tried to do something cool in their slow motion walk, but it had never been done before like that. And it's been imitated for the last 25 years. Yeah. Everywhere. And commercials, for God's sakes. It's, I've seen it repeated so many hundreds of times in so many things. It's crazy. Yeah. It was very specially done. And then we did one giant walk with everybody you know, where he was with us and we all walked together. I think we all did that twice because we had to walk and just keep going and keep going and disappear to the end of the parking lot, you know, for the, for the end of the, the, the titles there. Yeah. Lawrence Tierney did not want to do it, by the way. Really? He was a grumpy old guy. <laughs> I, I've read that. I've read that. Sometimes. He swung a big punch at me in front of Musso and Franks. He missed me, though. I, I, I moved back right the last second. I felt the wound. You know, almost got me. Every day when he would come to work, he'd say, give me 20 bucks. Give me 20 bucks. Give me 20 bucks. And I'd say, no, man. No, Lawrence, no. But every once in a while, I'd say, okay, man. <laughs> and then the next day, he'd give me 20 bucks. And I'd say, I just gave you 20 bucks yesterday. Say, I don't know. Give me 20 bucks. I said, no, man. And you, <laughs> he me. He missed me. Thank God. It probably would have knocked me out. He made a lot of money off that movie. Uh, well, nobody did actually, but um, we all did that. That's that movie was done for less than a million dollars. Wow! And everybody got scale. Michael, we we've been doing this podcast. Or I think we're about a, coming in on 120 episodes, and there's there's one more guy that joins us, and he wasn't able to make it today. But we have an ongoing debate almost from the beginning of the show about whether or not Kill Bill is one movie. Is it one movie or is it two movies? Kevin and I believe that Kill Bill is one film, and Sean, who is not here to defend himself, believes it's two different films because it was released at two different times. Uh, where do you stand on, on our... We've, we've had Quentin weigh in with his thought, and we're curious, since, since you're in the movie, what are your thoughts? Is it one movie or two movies? Well, I mean, I think it originally was supposed to be one movie, mm-hmm. but... I think they were shooting such incredible stuff that uh, when everybody started seeing the footage and it came time to cut it together, I think everybody realized that, you know, what were you going to cut out? I mean, it was so brilliant. It was so great that there was really nothing that anybody wanted to lose. And I remember I was, uh, I was actually shooting in my trailer in Barstow with David, uh, the opening scene with me and David. Oh, I love that. And, uh, I tried to pull a gun on David, by the way. It was really funny. And then he left the set, and nobody knew where he went, and he had gone to get a gun. Because he said, Matson's going to pull a gun. Well, I'm going to pull one, too. And Quentin was like, no, 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 you guys, put your guns away. You're not 
gun, you know. It was actually very, very funny. I, I love David so much for that. I miss him every time I tell that story. Because he didn't know I had a gun. I surprised him when I came out the trailer with a pistol. He didn't know I was going to do it. <laughs> so he just immediately left this, this, this set. Where's David? Where's David? Oh, he's over at Props. He's asking for a pistol. <laughs> but he came to me that day, Quentin, and he said, uh, Michael, can you believe it? And I go, believe what? And he goes, you know, I just talked to uh, the producer, and he said, you know, they want to uh, release this in two parts, like part one and part two. And I go, really? And he goes, do you think I should do that? And I go, I don't know, you know? And he goes, I think it's ridiculous. And he started laughing. I'm not going to do that. Meanwhile, you know, <laughs> uh, six months later, it was uh, volume one and volume two. So I think it confused the hell out of everybody. And I think that it's the reason why Uma probably, like, I think David should have been nominated. I think David should have gotten an Academy Award. I think Uma should have got one. They should have went to her house and knocked on the door and handed it to her. Agreed, 100%. Because nobody knew, like, what was going to happen in the second part because it didn't seem to have an ending to the movie. And everyone had to wait for three months for the ending to come out. And then it was past the qualifying time for certain things. Uh, I think that confused a, a few people. But when you see it now, I usually tell people to watch part two first and then go back and see part one because, uh, I don't know, it makes more sense for me that way. It seems more like, what happened to this guy? What the hell was that about? You know, it's a fascinating. I think that movie is a lot better than it was ever given credit for. It's an incredible, incredible, incredible film. It's so good. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. And Zoe Bell is incredible in the stunt work she does for Umar. She's she's amazing. So I, I, I love her. I really do. broke her arm when I shot her with the shotgun out the trailer. What? You did what? You know, when she comes in and I'm sitting in the camper with the shotgun in my yeah. lap. And she opened the door, boom, right? That was Zoe Bell. And they, she was on a tether. And they, you know, they, they tether her out, you see, in the air. And there's a big pad for her to land on the pad, boom, outside the trailer. It's buried in dirt. So when she hits it, you know, you, it, it, you can't tell that she's landed on a, a thing. But they did it. They ratcheted her so far out that she flew past it. And she didn't hit the pad and she busted her, her wrist. Wow. Well, what, what I wanted to ask, so yesterday I actually, um, I, I feel ashamed to admit this, but I, I have no problem telling you this. I watched The Natural for the first time. Um, and my father-in-law uh, is obsessed with that film. My wife and loves that movie. So I wanted to experience it with them because it was a film they grew up with. And obviously seeing you on screen was a very cool thing for me because, you know, prior to Reservoir Dogs and Thelma and Louise, I, I didn't see a ton of your earlier work. So I'm watching this this movie and I see your performance and you're so great in it. And I was just curious what you remember about your experience with Redford, but also that particular scene where your character dies. It's a very crazy sequence as you run right into that back of the field into that wall like what do you remember about filming that and that movie in general well you know uh i wasn't very good in high school and um so i couldn't really play a lot of sports in school because i had such terrible grades and you know i tended to run around with the wrong crowd and you know i wasn't really the, the jock in school and all the cool guys you know got to play football and and track and baseball 
And so, because I never got to do that, when I got offered the part in The Natural, I wanted to do the movie because I wanted all my buddies that I grew up with to see me being a baseball player. Mm. <laughs> you know, I wanted to put that Knights uniform on and hit some baseballs and actually experience being a, a, a major league baseball player. And I, I really, uh, I got cut out of that movie quite a bit, I think. It was one of my first experiences as an actor to know that what you do in a movie might not necessarily end up in the movie. Mm. And that Bump Bailey was a lot bigger character. And I did a lot of other stuff in that movie that never made it in the picture. And I think it was for plot reasons or whatever. Um, I have my theories of why. But, uh, you know, when you're a young actor, it's quite a shock when you go to see a big movie like that and you're not in it mm. as much as you thought you would have been. Uh, Redford was great to me. As a matter of fact, he, the stunt guy who was supposed to run through the wall when he catches the ball, there was one section of the wall that's balsa wood. And so he can go through it after he catches the baseball. And he missed it. And he hit the real wall. And he went down. And so I said I would do it. And if they, re, you know, they rebuilt it again. And wow. I said I would do it. And nobody would let me do it. The producer didn't want me to do it. Barry Levinson didn't want me to do it. And Robert Redford said, if Michael wants to run through the wall, let him do it. If Matthew wants to do it, let him do it. And so I did. I actually ran out there and caught it and it went through. I landed on a mattress. And I can't tell whether that's me in the movie or not because they did do it again with a stunt guy. And I was on the other side of the field when they, they shot it. I mean, I ran out and caught the ball. I did all the, the batting myself. I did pretty much everything except that, but I did do it one time. And I never know if that was the one that's actually uh, got left in the movie. But there was a bunch of scenes I did that were not in there. But uh, it was a War Memorial Stadium in Buffalo, New York. And, uh, you know, it was fun. It was one of the big, biggest pictures I had ever done at that point. Yeah, well, it's a great movie. Uh, I know we're wrapping you up, so I'm going to bring this back full circle uh, as we wrap you up. Uh, Jake started the interview about squibs. I was going to ask you real quick before you go, what's your favorite squib story? I know Tim Roth has some crazy squib stories, but something that happened in one of your films that where the squib just kind of went off at the wrong time or you, you found blood later on in, in, in your, in your I don't know, in your arms somewhere, I don't know. Well, you know what? One time I was making a movie in uh, Vancouver. It was called Vice. It's a cop movie I did with Daryl Hannah. I like that movie a lot, by the way. It's one of my personal favorites, and I could explain why, but it would take me a long time. But anyway, uh, I get shot at one point in that movie in the chest, and we had did it that night. We had did a, we were up pretty late shooting that, and I really wanted to go back to the hotel. I really wanted to go to bed, and so I walked off the set after we I did my my coverage of you know getting shot. I had a black leather jacket on, I took it off and I went, and I went back to the Four Seasons. And so when we pulled up in front of the valet, I got out of the car, you know, I had this great big bloody shirt on with a bullet hole on my chest. And I got out of the car and I was really super tired. It was about three o'clock in the morning. And the valet guy goes, uh, Mr. Manson, Mr. Manson, are you all right? Are you all right? And I, and jokingly, as a joke, I said, ah, I got shot, man. I, you know, I, I got shot, you know. I meant, of course, that I'd been shot in the movie. I didn't really mean I got shot. But when I walked away, I went in the lobby, right? And at the Four Seasons, they have 
uh, elevators on the lower as well as the upper. And so I went right in the elevator and I went up there. And, uh, you know, I got up to my room and it was about 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. I'm in my room and I hear sirens out front. And I'm like, wow, what the hell is going on, right? And my phone's ringing, and I said, hello. And they're like, Mr. Manson, Mr. Manson, they're coming up right now. The paramedics are coming up. And I said, what? what? What's going on? And they were at my door, banging on the door, and I opened the door, and they came in with their kits and everything and put them down. <laughs> you know, said, sit down. And the guy was trying to put the blood pressure cuff on me, and I said, guys, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fake blood. I'm not really shot. And uh, it took them about 15 seconds to realize that I was, I was not bleeding to death, but it was, uh, it was very funny. That's an amazing, amazing story. Well, Michael, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for all that you've done for cinema. Uh, you're talking to two people who genuinely, genuinely are just very appreciative of your time. And, and thank you for walking through some of these stories with us. I know you've told them before, but it, it truly means a lot to us. Thank you. You know what? You guys are very patient and I'm, I'm cooped up at home and it's been a great pleasure for me, honestly. It's, uh, it's great memories I have and it's good to share them with everybody. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you doing it. Seriously, it's an honor chatting with you. Thank you for joining us on Real Blend and we'll talk to you again soon, man. Good to see you. Obviously, we want to thank Michael Madsen for joining the show and for sharing all those amazing stories. You guys got some great, great stuff out of him. Yeah, I mean, that was honestly a very, very cool thing to be able to just to talk to him. It was weird. I was like, I was sitting there Yesterday when we were in the conversation, just looking at him with these Elvis glasses on, and I just kind of have flashed back to like me being in college, going around searching for the Mr. Blonde and Mr. Brown and Mr. Blue DVD covers. And um, I only, I've spoken to him once before, but it was for it was for Hateful Eight. And it was like, a, you know, it was a four minute junket slot uh, with him and Bruce Dern, which is a great room. Don't get me wrong. But to, to actually pick Madsen's brain for 30 minutes um, without the fear of time running out. Um, and then him want to tell stories was really cool. And the knife, uh, the razor blade thing, I had no idea. That was And that, again, that was... one of those situations where you're getting him to specifically talk about the the material, the subjects that you want to really go yeah. double, and, double down on. And he was all in. And I also love that he talked about Zoe Bell, who I, I think is one of the most underrated people in the industry. Um, and she put out this amazing video this week where she had a virtual fight that occurs between um, Scarlett Johansson, Halle Berry, a bunch of different actors. It's probably one of the most brilliantly edited viral videos I've seen in a long time. Um, but Zoe Bell is the actress who plays the stunt. He's a, she's the stunt actress who plays uh, Uma Thurman's stunt double and, and Kill Bill. And she was also in obviously Death Proof and once upon a time in Hollywood. Amazing in Death yeah. Proof. Yeah, um, incredible. So uh, shout out no to her. No clue how she didn't die in Death Proof. Yeah, like, I don't what understand. What did you do to my car? <laughs> 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 All right, talking points. Um, AMC and Regal, uh, shortly after we uh, went off the air last week, got into a little war of words with Universal Studios. And so we're just going to touch on this briefly because I want to get your guys' opinions on what this could potentially mean for the future. So um, Universal has been uh, one of the main studios that have been very comfortable throwing their stuff to VOD. Um, they did Trolls World Tour. It was one of the first major films to skip theatrical and go right to uh, paid VOD. Um, ever since then, other films have been following. Artemis Fowl for Disney is going to go to Disney+. Plus. 
Uh, Warner Brothers is releasing um, Scoob. That's going to be going to uh, paid VOD. We're hearing uh, a lot of rumors, though no confirmation yet, that New Mutants is going to go to VOD in some way, shape, or form. And then um, Universal, which is what triggered this this uh, argument yet again, has revealed that the Judd Apatow, Pete Davidson comedy, The King of Staten Island, which was supposed to go to theaters in June, is now skipping and going to pay, paid VOD uh, in June because they're under the impression the theaters won't be back up and running by that time. So AMC came out with a pretty bold stance saying we're not going to carry any more Universal films uh, ever, which to me struck me as something that you can say now, you know, while there are no Universal movies uh, at the ready. But I don't know how strong that stance is going to be when Fast 9 is ready to come or the next Jurassic, Jurassic Park. World. Yeah, any of those big ones. So so do you guys see this as as posturing right now or is it something that's really going to to hold fast and true because Universal pushed too far? I mean, I just feel like to play devil's advocate and, and, and obviously like it goes without saying everyone that's a part of this podcast is a fan of the theatrical experience. So by no means am I like taking the sides of of you know, any particular corporation in, in this, uh, in this fight. But I just feel like, I think, I guess my question, and Kevin and I were talking about this last week, does AMC have the weight to throw these, this threat for lack of a better word around? We're talking about a company that was almost what, quite literally days away from declaring bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And now they're saying, yeah, we were going to de- declare bankruptcy three days ago, but now we choose not just to not air your billion dollar franchise, but to give that to the competition. Because people are going to go, people are going to seek those movies out one way or the other. So right. if they're not seeing them at AMC, it's not like they're not going to see them. They're just going to go to a competitor to go see them. Okay. So like a Carmichael I, or a. Yeah, like they, like they will find someone, you know. So I guess my question is like, does AMC really have what it takes? Like, can they follow up? Is it is it a hollow threat, which they've assured in the statement that it wasn't, but, but do, do they have the weight to stand up behind this threat? I guess is what I'm asking. I think what AMC, AMC did was extremely smart. I think it was actually an incredibly smart business decision. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why, uh, AMC. So the articles are popping out there. Everyone's reading these misleading headlines, you know, trolls world tour makes more money than the, you know, than the initial run, you know, the run of, uh, the first trolls movie. And then you have a Wall Street Journal piece come out where the Universal CEO makes a statement that is very threatening to the very nature of our theatrical business, mm-hmm. um, which is we plan to, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to take them out of context, but the quote was we are going to plan to release films on both formats in the future, something yes. along those lines. And that is a very scary sentiment. Um, There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who work at movie theaters that rely on those paychecks for their jobs. And so the theater experience, the entire idea of a theater is not just the movie. It is a social experience. And also many, many people rely on it for their jobs and their income and to feed their families. So when Regal puts out a statement like 35,000 of our employees are at home, you start to think about the weight of what it would mean if VOD actually became a the same day as the theatrical run. Because what are you going to if someone's at home with a family 
and they have the option to watch that film on VOD or go to the theater and they choose to watch it on VOD that is taking attendance away from the theater which is taking money away from the theater which is taking money out of the pockets of the employees of the theater employees so my opinion is AMC had to do this and I'm so thankful they did because they had to shift the narrative that that statement was a shifting of narrative it had to be brutally harsh because you can't have articles coming out in the Wall Street Journal with statements saying things like that with no repercussions as to what it's going to do financially to people's work and their jobs and and their lives. So you have this window that you've been experiencing for the longest time, this agreement you've had together, the exclusivity of the theatrical run, and then you break it with trolls, which was deemed to be an exception. But you can't make a statement like that in an article like that because the article is essentially saying that movie theaters are never going to be the same ever again. Mm -hmm. And while that might be the case, while the theatrical experience may be different, it will be different. I do believe that those are very dangerous things to state because you start shifting people's mindsets towards, oh, this is okay. And I think by Universal drawing that line in the sand, it was a brilliant move because then Regal jumped on. Now, Regal, I want to clarify because Regal, a lot of people reported that Regal was joining AMC. They weren't. Regal's statement was, we will not play films that don't honor the theatrical window. It was a nicer way to say what AMC was saying. AMC pinpointed Universal. I get that. But at the same time, Regal said the same thing. So now you have AMCs and Regal, two of the largest theater chains in the world, saying they will not play your films if you do not adhere to our theatrical window policy. That is an amazing statement. Because now you've backed the theater into a corner. Because now you have two of the largest theater chains in the world, thousands of, whatever the number of theaters, I have no idea what the exact number of theaters are, but I know there's over a thousand AMCs, who are not going to play your movie. And those companies need those theaters. I think it's the opposite way around. I think that the theaters, if they all stand together, if every theater company stands together and refuses to play films that don't adhere to the window, that will be the answer. Now, here's the thing. I am all for finding a middle ground. If you want to shorten the window from 90 to 30 or 45 or whatever you want to do it to, Mm -hmm. to find a common ground where it's a little easier for people to digest that that wait time, that's what you have conversations about. You don't just come out in an article and say, we're going to release on both formats. That's a threat. To me, that's a threat. That's a threat to the experience that we all love. And I took that personally. I, I, I found that to be a very problematic thing to say. Now, Again, I'm sure that, you know, they'll discuss things further. They'll have conversations. I'm not calling out Universal specifically. I'm just saying that I think AMC made the right move. They had to make a drastic decision and put change the narrative. Think about how fast that narrative shifted. It went from Trolls being the number one movie on VOD to AMC refusing to play their films. Well, that and narrative shifted so quickly and it was beautiful to watch. And right after that, Universal was the one that kind of apologized and clarified their statement. Exactly. They came out so, right after and they said, yeah. look, we never said we're going to abandon theatrical altogether. We said we're going to use p- paid VOD in situations where it makes more sense. And we've been having right. this conversation on the show about how the theaters might become... Just because of the amount of films are going to want to get on the big screen, and we talked about deals like IMAX screens and things like that, that the mid-budget films, you know, or films that, like, when we pointed out Artemis Fowl, we were like, okay, Artemis Fowl probably wasn't going to crush at the box office, so it makes sense for it to go to Disney+. Plus. But I go back to Baby Driver, a mid-budget movie that doesn't get, La La Land doesn't get a theatrical release. Oh, that would be sad. 
Think I'm about really that. Upset. And like these mid-budget films that are so glorious to see on the big screen, like you're not going to see them if if we come to like if you come to an agreement that oh, mid-budget films under a certain amount of budget will not be playing in theaters, we'll just go right to VOD same date whatever it is. Like that what does that mean? Does that mean every movie that doesn't cost over 100 million dollars is going to be put onto VOD? I mean, La La Land was a theatrical experience. It only cost 20 million to make. Right. But that was a theatrical experience. So well, was Phantom Thread. You know, like, Jake so brought many... up comedies. Um, and in that sense, yeah. you know, King of Staten Island is one of those ones that would do better with a with a theatrical experience because right. people tend to react to comedies stronger in, in that way. Now, I could also see Pete Davidson kind of leaning into this and going, all right, uh, everybody where it's legal, you could smoke weed and watch the movie with me. or whatever. You know what I mean? I, I could just see them playing into certain ways at home to have fun with it i guess yeah but at the same time there's nothing that will capture that audience experience and i don't care what anyone says you were at home watching a movie there is no there's there's no safety there's at the theater you do not have the ability to pause the film it keeps going that's the way the world works in the cinema at home you run it so your experience is completely uh edited essentially by your own self sure whether or not you want to pause it whether or not you want to get up and get a snack whether or not i mean imagine getting up and getting a snack and missing a, an entire key piece of dialogue that completely shifts your entire perspective on the story i mean these are things that can happen at theaters you can go to the bathroom i get that but i think at home it's easier for the person to make their own rules and i think in theaters it gives you the experience this is how we're going to show it to you enjoy it But there still hasn't been a a movie selection. There still hasn't been a title that has been announced that it's going to VOD where I went, oh, man, like that was going to be a massive theatrical experience. Like like everything that and honestly, even even the Apatow movie, because I question like how much people really like Pete Davidson and how much a Pete Davidson comedy was going to do at the Mm -hmm. box office. Every movie has made sense. Yeah. Like there there still hasn't been one where I've gone. Oh, now the game's changing. Like, if anything, it just kind of seems like a cop-out excuse for a lot of these studios to get rid of movies that were, if anything, just going to be bad press for them. Like, if it, it's sort of like they're all looking around going like, look, we've got a handful of movies on our slate that aren't going to do well. If they're come out, in, if they're going to come out in theaters, they're going to be bad press for us and they're going to lose money. Why don't we turn this into a positive for us? And now we look like good guys because mm-hmm. it looks like we're giving people gifts well, while they're stuck New at Mutants home. Give New Mutants a release date because for God's sake, look, movie you'll needs get a boost. New Mutants in the next eight to ten years and you'll be happy about it. All right. <laughs> but what about films that need the theater experience to actually make money? La La sure. Land made over three hundred million dollars worldwide or whatever the number was. That would not have done that at home. I, I, and again, I, I know I can't scientifically break down as to why that wouldn't happen at home. But that movie really uh, benefited from the legs. Well, word of mouth right and i think you know that's the thing that's crazy to me is you know i don't know i i just find this to be such an interesting topic i mean are you guys with me on this do you think i think amc made a smart decision i think it was a smart business decision in the moment i, I, I wasn't knocking the decision i i the, my my initial point was just questioning staying whether power. yeah whether like you know they they've got a lot of you know they're, they're you know talking a big talk i guess my question is whether or not they can back it up I also think they picked a fight with the one of the smaller kids on the playground. They did. They didn't pick it with Disney. Nope. They didn't pick it with Warner Brothers. Nope. Now Universal is large, obviously. Yes, of I course. mean, it's of not course. like you know if this it's was one, like a it's pan- one of the big. Well, it used to be six, but three. one of the big five now. Yeah, for sure. And so, 
I mean, here's the thing. If AMC took a swing at Disney, then I'd be like, well, all right, now we have a conversation here. Yeah. But when it comes to like Fast 9, and so let's say we get to next year. Which is a year away, though. Yeah. So imagine that's about to come out. Why can't there, why couldn't there just have been a conversation? You know what? Let's shorten that window. You know, yeah. we're going to be in different times. Let's just shorten that. Oh, window. okay. Let me bring this up. Let me bring this up. And I think this, I think we'll move on after this, but I, I think this is what's going to happen because when films are able to start to come back to theaters, um, if we go to a place where it's 50% capacity of a theater and you put it on more screens to reach more people. Um, so let's say that Wonder Woman comes out in August, right? And, and they put it on as many screens as they can. Because there isn't a lot of competition. It's just Wonder Woman. Um, and it gets a big screen uh, treatment for maybe two weeks. But two weeks later, the next big thing comes, which I don't know the date, but it might be Quiet Place 2, right? Theoretically, yeah. Quiet Place 2 comes out. Now Quiet Place 2 needs some screens. So, so Wonder Woman can come off. But now they allow it to go to paid VOD immediately. Oh, I like that. So, right? so, they do the, so they do the two-week run solo. Yes. Now, what if you have multiple films opening on a on a, on a on a on a weekend? What do you do? I don't know. Like, do you divide? I mean, but I actually like your I I like that idea. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of the Netflix um, formula, and that's why I've always defended Netflix in re- in regards to that. Well, after we saw Roma, and I understood the the idea of what where theaters were. That was a very eye opening experience for me. So I have no problem with you want to put you want to pop your movie in theaters See? for two weeks. And, 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 but see, here's why I don't have a problem with that. Two weeks might be a little short, maybe a month, but two weeks to a month. The reason why I like that is because it makes the person go to the theater if they want to see it right yeah. away. Yeah. It, but, it but I would argue that go. there are too few complacent moviegoers out there that will straight up just not go if they know all I've got to do is wait two weeks and then it's available at home. Like I okay, think, okay. I think maybe, you maybe risk a losing maybe a millions of dollars. You maybe risk losing millions of dollars if you make it that quick. Of it. There's got to be a time in which thirty days. Yeah, I guess. I mean, we're getting to that point anyway. I guess. Like, it, I mean, it's been. Remember when it used to be like seeing theaters, and then it was a year before it, it came out. On, yeah, it was yeah. a long time. I'd be um, okay with thirty. Is thirty? Do you guys think thirty is a reasonable? I yeah. think a month in theaters. I, I mean, my t- my take is that all bets are off. Like we're going to have to change the way that the rules were now, regardless. Right. So instead of going the complete extreme and going oh both formats, I know they backtracked it, but that's that's a better conversation. Hey, maybe we'll have a conversation with NATO about shortening our windows. Yeah, that sounds reasonable to me. That's why I think AMC had to make that decision. All right. Well, we'll continue to track that story as we go. Um, I just want to get your quick take on the fact that Sylvester Stallone is talking about the development of Demolition Man 2. Um, this... I rewatched that this weekend. OK, so this lands in my category of too much time has passed. Uh, Kev, I know you're a fan of the original, though. Well, Do you want to see more from this world? 100 percent. I mean, but yeah. here's the thing. It's it's out of just complete nostalgia i mean i i mean I, I actually think demolition man's a better movie than it gets credit for um yeah i i've always found that film to be fun i think wesley snipes just had a, a blast making it you could just tell um, you just love the taco bell is in it i do love the taco bell I mean, the taco bell executives have to be so happy right now <laughs> yeah when i went to the taco bell i went to the taco bell headquarters in california uh once and uh, they had i walked in they have a taco bell in the lobby and they have a huge demolition man poster in the kitchen area. I thought it was awesome. I was like, that's pretty cool. Just a little I was so inside. bummed that the, you missed the recreation of the Demolition Man Taco Bell at San Diego Comic-Con. It's pretty great. They but dude, cool honestly, that would be a Demolition Man 2. Now, it's interesting. If you if you start thinking of the world in VOD, um, which I don't really want to, but if you, if we if we have to, 
Demolition Man 2 is almost like a great Netflix movie. Yeah. Sure. Like, I don't I don't know if Demolition 2 would Demolition Man 2 would be a blockbuster like the first one was. But because you like you said, too much time has passed. Like, for example, well, Stallone's they, not a star anymore. Like he, that right. was during a prime for him. Right. But if if you're de- if you're de- if you're Netflix and you popped a dude. Extraction reportedly is it's going to do 90 million households reportedly uh, in four weeks, whatever that number really means. I don't know. But you put Demolition Man 2 on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about the numbers and also the trending aspect of it. That, that's like a perfect trending type movie. It's like, a yep. you know, almost like you're releasing another episode. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. necessary, yeah. but I'd watch it. Well, I will mention here briefly, too, that um, Extraction 2 has been greenlit uh, based on the success of that film and that we hear that Joe Russo is going to be coming back to plot it. Um, I will plug here the ability to go listen to our interview with Joe and Anthony Russo that we had on the show last week, uh, where even at the end of it, we talked about the ambiguous ending of extraction and whether it meant that they could tell more stories in this world. And something interesting that they said was whether they um, even needed to go forward with the story or if they could go back and tell an old story with the character that Chris uh, Hemsworth plays, uh, Tyler Rake. So I, I'd I watch that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. Are, are you surprised how big it was? Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, but Hemsworth is a big star and they put the but Russos a, front and center for it. So the biggest premiere to date. I think it's I good, mean, too. I liked it. I liked it, too. But yeah. I mean, uh, but I'm surprised. 90 million is a, a big number. Uh, but it also goes back to member Jake Smiling. <laughs> yeah. Think about the Trolls World Tour numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, what other films have come out that have been that big on Netflix that you could compare that to? So let's say, for example, I don't know. Let's say, for example, they dropped Demolition Man 2 tomorrow. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what, would that be comparable to Extraction? Like, do you, like I, So I guess we need another movie to come out. Like that, like that, right. that, 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 but also consider the circumstances though. Like, even We're with home. all the other movies that they've dropped, like, I'm thinking about, like, wasn't, wasn't Murder Mystery huge for them last time? Right. You've got, you've got yeah, Sandler yeah. and Aniston. Even in that moment, you didn't have the world stuck at home with nothing to do. I, yeah. I like, I, I picture you drop Murder Mystery now and equ- yeah. like equally big numbers because people are gonna be like, well, I guess I'll just turn this on. Um, but yeah, I mean, people saw a new movie available to them starring yeah. Chris Hemsworth available yeah. in their home and all they have to do is press a button. Like, of course, that many people are. Hello. Uh, are gonna, also, you know. um, that extraction is the polar opposite type of movie that Michelle likes to sit down for. And she sat down and watched the entire thing. Yeah. And it is well, it's because the lead actor looks like her husband. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, it, it, it is Hemsworth honestly, fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is fun. fun. Um, and speaking of such a, a similar extraction movie, uh, John Wick 4, the latest casualty of the Hollywood uh, shuffle on the release date schedule, pushed back a full year. Brace yourself for this one. May 27th, 2022. <laughs> we will see Keanu Reeves Jeez. returning to theaters in the John Wick franchise. So uh, put that one on the shelf and we'll talk about it when we get a little bit later. Uh, this topic I can't wait to get uh, Jake's opinion on specifically. Taika Waititi. Uh, and it's really funny. I just, just texted Jake um, because he and I were going to watch the last four episodes of the Clone Wars season finale. And uh, a friend of mine, Adam Frazier, who's super into Star Wars, was saying that this arc that goes over the last four uh, episodes is the closest to a satisfying Star Wars movie that um, that he thinks fans have seen in a really long time. So I was excited to sit down 
and uh, dive into that. And then I asked Jake in the text chain whether he is um, disappointed that there aren't any Star Wars films on the immediate horizon, that they've sort of pushed pause on the production slate for the films and are putting a lot of attention into the TV side, whether it's The Mandalorian uh, or some of these uh, animated series, like in wrapping up The Clone Wars. Obviously, they talk about the Obi-Wan series that they were going to do, um, and the movies seem to have stalled out. And Jake, you were saying that you were kind of glad that they are taking a break from it uh, after Rise of Skywalker. But then right on the heels of you saying that, they announced Taika Waititi uh, doing this Star Wars film. And then it picked up the writer, um, the girl who wrote uh, 1917, um, whose name is escaping me right now, briefly. Um, Christy. Christy Cairns. Yeah. She's an amazing writer. I actually like talking to her for 1917. Anyway, so she's on board for the Star Wars film. Uh, Taika's going to direct. Jake, thoughts? What do you think? Look, I, I I love his vision. I love his voice. Uh, I was a big fan of Thor Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't as much of a fan of, of Jojo Rabbit. I thought it was fine. Um, but uh, but I, I love what he brings to it. I mean, you can tell like his flashes of involvement with Mandalorian. Like mm-hmm. you could like you could just tell like that's a Taika moment. When something would happen, you go, oh, that's definitely a Taika moment. I I hope they just let him loose and let him do whatever it is that he wants to do. I look forward to a story breaking away from uh, the Skywalker saga because I feel like that opens up a lot of possibilities. I think that the, the point that I was making yesterday in our text thread was just that, like, I miss when a Star Wars movie was an event. Like, I, you know, I, I miss when it was a massive deal yeah. that a Star Wars movie was coming out. And uh, I the only way you're ever going to replicate that feeling again is through time by by letting enough time pass so that you honestly kind of forget about it, and then it comes back and it feels special again. Yeah. And I get like they didn't spend four billion dollars on that franchise for nothing. They're gonna keep and look, look. I'm never gonna live in a world in which I'm I'm, I'm upset that a new Star Wars movie is coming out. But I wouldn't mind like we got some closure for a second. We got we got that final shot of Rise of Skywalker, mm-hmm. and we're getting new Star Wars content. Like like the, I kind of was hoping that the series would sort of hold us over. Honestly, I wouldn't. If you were to say, "Would you mind waiting a decade?" I would kind of be okay with that. I wouldn't really? mind waiting ten years before we got another Star Wars movie. I just the hire feels to me like uh, a hire that that Disney thinks people want them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, a risky, talented yep. filmmaker, but it yep. just because of what happened to Lord Miller, yep. I just am uh, until it happens. Until he's able to deliver an offbeat Star Wars movie. Um, I'm not going to believe that they're going to let him uh, put his stamp on it in the way that Marvel did with Thor Ragnarok. Um, Because even when he did put his stuff into Mandalorian, it was still very much in the template of what the Mandalorian episodes were. You know, it it didn't go full Taika. uh, Or maybe he has no interest in going full Taika when it's in the Mandalorian. But couldn't you say that they may have learned their lesson from Lord Miller? And also, like, Lord Miller, even though, like, Solo didn't have to, didn't have to fit within the confines of an episode it still needed to exist within that reality it still sure. needed to you know um i think if you're giving him a blank slate on an opposite side of the galaxy with characters we've never met and stories that have no repercussions to stories that we're already familiar with i feel like he's in a much better position to be given a little bit more um all right. A little bit more room on the leash, I guess. I, w- I want to bring up a rumor that people are throwing around here, and I want to bring it up because we said it here on this show first. Uh, they announced Mandalorian season two directors uh, last mm-hmm. last uh, yesterday on Twitter. 
Robert Rodriguez is directing yeah. an episode of The Mandalorian. Real blend guest Robert Rodriguez. Real blend guest Ma- Robert Rodriguez. Uh, Peyton Reed, uh, Ant-Man mm-hmm. director Peyton Reed is coming across. Now Taika, who's mm-hmm. Thor Ragnarok director, but of course involved in Mandalorian over to this point. Yeah. And then people point out the fact that Kathy Kennedy didn't have quotes in the press release um, for the Taika movie. And there was speculation that with these Marvel hires and no Kathy Kennedy quote, is Kevin Feige making the the step over to the Marvel universe? Now mm. that's a that's a reach, but not a reach. Um, it also makes, <laughs> makes yeah. a lot of sense. I, I get how you got there because I, Feige I get, also yeah. was going to wasn't he creatively workshopping a Star Wars movie that people yeah. said he might yeah, bring yeah he was going to be a producer over? on it yeah uh, so I, wow I just don't have interest in. A Taika Star Wars film, personally. Uh, I mean, but you didn't. I'm, you weren't I, crazy about Ragnarok. I just, I, I. He doesn't connect with me as a filmmaker. I just, yeah. It's just not something. It's. I just don't find his humor. Not you even Jojo. Jojo what, Rabbit was fine. It was fine. Yeah. I mean, what, I thought, what, what I, we I do think, in the think, shadows? I think Taika is better with drama than he is with comedy. I think mm-hmm. his comedy sticks out too much. Like, for example, in like you said in the Mandalorian episodes, I knew when Taika stepped in. Oh, I, like, I knew Jason Sudeikis's dialogue. That was full blown Taika Waititi. Like, I feel like his style almost takes me out of the movies oh, because it's so. It's like like the, the fact that you have to say he's going full blown Taika. That means that we are aware of what his style is, and I don't. I felt the Sudeikis stuff was funny. But I didn't think it fit within the world of the Mandalorian whatsoever. I I just did not personally think that. But that being said, I don't said, know whose joke it was that they shot at something right in front of him and couldn't hit it. But that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> that I, love that. I, I love that. I love. I see. I, I just. I don't. Know, I don't find the characters he writes, in my opinion, to be characters that I just. I don't. Know, they they don't seem like people. They seem like caricatures. Sure. Um, I can see that. Fine, but then at the end of the day, I just don't have a. I don't have a grounded sense of. But to Jake's point, I. Yeah, I'm all Star Wars out at this point. I'm just it's just Star Wars fatigue. There another Star Wars movie coming out. It's almost like another Star Wars movie coming out. It's not a big deal anymore. It's not even Mm -hmm. a surprise anymore. Um, And Skywalker, I think, was the the end of all that like fatigue. It just kind of like everyone was like, like Jake said, like like you know we're we know we're we're done for a little while. Taika being announced, like you said, Sean, is it feels like a a, a fan hire. Like the fans want this kind of thing. Yeah, we're gonna bring him. It makes in. a great headline. Yeah, it makes a great headline. I just don't necessarily. Again, this could be an amazing film. It could be phenomenal. I'm not. I have no idea what it's gonna be about yet. I just don't have not yet connected with him as an as, a, I, as an audience I, member. I want to jump ahead. We were going to talk about the Star Wars Clone Wars finale um, a little bit later in the show, but I want to hop to it here for this reason. Um, so I, I dove into those last four episodes of Clone Wars uh, after seeing a lot of people uh, who were Star Wars fans raving about, look, even if you haven't kept up with Clone Wars, uh, Dave Filoni, who's running it, obviously is um, super immersed in the Star Wars universe, tells amazing stories. His his main character is Ahsoka Tano, who Rosario Dawson might end up playing on screen someday. That's That's been a deal that's sort of been floating around out there. Um, and so I picked him up with the last four episodes of this final season um, because they said you could almost just sort of plug in. You don't have to really know who's going on. And I watched Clone Wars with the boys when they were younger uh, for a couple of seasons, but we didn't stick with it the whole way through. They just sort of evolved onto other stuff. We did watch Rebels and Rebels was a really great example of introducing new characters who you'd never seen before, but they it felt like Star Wars, at least the tone of Star Wars was there. And I ran into a problem with these last four episodes, which were really well done. I like them a lot. And I love the animation in Clone Wars. 
and it told a good arc, but it was an Ahsoka Tano story, again, because Filoni loves her, and it had Darth Maul as a villain, it had significant things for um, Anakin and Obi-Wan, uh, and it just... As I was trying to get into it, I'm running into the same thing that that Kevin said and that Jake said. I'm tired of these same characters over and over and oh, and like Darth Maul. You know, he when he shows up, like he shows up in the Han Solo movie. Um, it's always Vader. That everyone's like, oh, the final scene of this Clone Wars four arc is the most heartbreaking thing you have ever seen. It's a Darth Vader scene. I'm not going to mention who it is or what happens in it, but when Darth Vader shows up, I was like this fucking guy again like i just had that sentiment of like how many times are we going to tell another version of you know darth vader is the troubled anti-hero you know that with it so i just i need them to try to tell a uh, a star wars story a series of star wars stories that doesn't involve in any way shape or form vader anyone named skywalker like just just go it makes the universe feel too small when all of these new stories come out and they just involve the same characters that we've been seeing over and over again. So I I, I need a break from that. I, give me a Star Wars movie next year that's just completely different from anything tied to this. And I'm, I am I would be more excited than uh, a recycling of the same characters and themes that we've been seeing in this universe for a very long time. That being said, it is a good story. And I would still uh, you know advise you to go on to Disney Plus and check and see how Clone Wars so, okay, I, I have a question, and, and, we, and we were sort of talking about this yesterday because you were asking uh, why I didn't watch it. And I was telling you how when I went to give it a shot, I yeah. think it was when it was on Netflix, and someone had told me the order in which it's on Netflix, and I don't know if, what the deal is with it on Disney+, Plus, is not the chronological order of the story. Okay. And someone was like, you have to, and that was that, that link that I sent you where you have yeah, to like, yeah. go find an episode in season two, and then you go find this episode in season three, and then you go find this episode in season one, and then like, that's how, you like, it's like, oh, like, this is, it was this whole deal about like, this is how you have to watch it if it, if you want it to make chronological sense. And there was just a part of me that kind of got annoyed by that. It's just like, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm not going to, like, I'm not, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have well, to do that. Disney Plus has them just by by season they were released. So they don't have it in this order, this chronological order. So that site that you found, I think it was Nerdist or IGN. Yeah. It was one of those yeah. two. Um, that would be very helpful if you want to keep it in chronological order. But Had you heard funny. that before? No. It's the first time I ever heard that. But that's interesting because Clone Wars is an animated show that I feel never really wrote for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, it was always kind of aimed at more adult Star Wars fans anyway. But they had to keep a, P- a PG balance. It still it, it walked a very strange line between we still have to appeal to kids because that we wanted them to be Star Wars fans. But we're shooting over their heads with a lot of things that's going on in it, too. And telling things out of chronological order would be one of those examples. Yeah. So, uh, all right. I want to get into uh, things that are streaming this week uh, because nothing's opening up in theaters. And I want to give you guys some, an opportunity to rave about uh, Sinister because it's a horror film that is on Netflix now after not being there for a really long time. Scott Derrickson, I know, and uh, C. Robert Gargill, who also the two of them did the Doctor Strange movie together. Uh, I have not seen this film, and I know a lot of people have raved about it over the years, but you guys are telling me I need to check it out. Yeah, it's a re- it's just a relentless, brutal, terrifying, nasty experience that is also fully immersive in the sense of characters that are written well that you care about. This is a this is an R rated movie that I cannot believe 
made it into the studio system. What's just, the plot? What is it? What in a The nutshell? idea behind the film essentially is um, Ethan Hawke's character is a, is like a, a true crime writer. So he'll okay. go into towns that have unsolvable cases or cases that haven't been solved yet. And he'll essentially write a book to try and solve the case himself that okay. the police didn't do on their end when the case was originally, uh, you know, in, in terms of that, that common, I don't know, I'm like losing my place now. Sorry. Cold so anyway, cases. so cold, yeah, cases, cold cases. Right? Sorry. So he moves into this house, doesn't tell his wife and his kids that a brutal murder happened within the confines of this property. It happened out back, uh, on a tree where a family was hung and he doesn't tell his wife that they decided to move into the house where that happened. So a lot of creepy stuff starts to happen. He ends up going in the basement and finding a box of Super 8 films that have all these different murders on them that are somehow connected to the house he's living in. And it is it's one of these movies where one, as I watch it, um, it the way I describe it is when you're watching certain horror films, I feel like you put on a seatbelt and you're fine like you're you might get nervous, you might feel like you're going too fast or something like that, but you're always locked into that seatbelt and you kind of feel safe. This was a film that I feel like they put you in a car that's going 200 miles per hour with no seatbelt on and you just have no idea if you're going to die or not. And you have no idea if you're going to be like thrown around the car, or tossed out the window because it is it's one of these films that just it feels unsafe. It feels as if the director is not letting you breathe and it feels as if he's not letting he's not letting you ever go oh everything's going to be fine he but and what i think love about this film is the characters like ethan hawk is a great character this is a character who's struggling with the idea that he's not spending enough time with his family he's writing a true crime book he wants to be there for his kids. His wife saying, "Just give it up. Let's just move somewhere else and let's start a life together." Because he had just... like a success, a successful right. book years ago, and every right. book since then has kind of been a failure. So he's Kentucky basically blood, sort of right? yeah, yeah. He's, so he's sort of had this. He has this mentality of like, I got to make this work. Like I've got to pull this book off. Um, which is why actually... he is not telling the authorities about these old eight millimeter tapes that right. he finds. And there's nothing, honestly. I don't know about you, Kevin. Like. There's something about like eight millimeter and like that those yeah. films and that sound and the grain that just is it already inherently just kind of creepy. Yeah. And then when you add the fact that they were used to film a murder, when you add a murder to like that, you know, in, yeah. the, in the grain and like that sound, it's just like everything about it. And then just like the construction of the murders themselves, they're not, it's not like like saw gross and nasty like oh like look how can we gross you out it's just so deeply unsettling yeah and sean honestly like as a family man i think there are going to be some of those sequences that you genuinely have trouble with there's i'll tell you right now am i wrong am i am i wrong kevin like wouldn't you say that like some of the families like the the family with the tree and the family in the car and it's like that's gonna be tough for him where do you get to my underrated 2010s blind pick i called my (laughs) i called my mom and dad this weekend and i made them watch sinister after i rewatched it friday night and this so i hadn't watched sinister since 2012 i saw it in theaters and it was one of the most terrifying things i've ever experienced in my life and to this day, it's a $3 million film that I just cannot believe was actually released. One, with an R rating, and two, it just made it out there in a wide release. I have no idea how it happened. I know it was made through Blumhouse, uh, and then you see his logo. Because it's that disturbing? It doesn't feel like a Hollywood horror film. I did the junkie. I, mean, I, 
I, and I mean, I don't know how you feel about this realm, Jake. I just find it to be such a deeply disturbing experience. It's yeah. almost as if when you're watching it, if you have a bunch of knives being jammed into your stomach, yeah. like the whole time, it's like uh-huh. this very eerie. And it's so good that they made a sequel and I purposely just went, yeah, I'm not going to watch it because Same. I because I loved the first and I think the sequels on Netflix. I loved the first one so much that I thought it, it, I don't think like Scott Derrickson wasn't involved. Was the original writer wasn't involved. Team, yeah. Though. And yeah. so I just went like, but, it's not going to be as good. All yeah. it could do is like potentially like lessen my love of the first one. It's going to okay. cheapen it. So it's it's and also like where the fr- and no, no spoilers at all. But where the first one ends off, it begins to hint at something else and then just yes. stops. That's all I want to know. I don't okay. want to know anything else. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to have it overly explained to me. I just want to stop it right there and then go like, just let my imagination run wild. Okay. And last thing I'll say is if you're a film fan, it's kind of cool to watch Ethan Hawke splice together eight millimeter films throughout the movie. Um, even though what what's on those films is horrifically disturbing, but it is fun to see him play with an old projector. Um, but I'll, I will say, last thing I'll say about this movie is the score. Um, there is ooh, a pe- there's a piece of music that plays every single time he plays an eight millimeter ah. film, and it's like this. It's almost like this techno beat, but it's dark and nasty. So the whole film just moves along at this really disturbing pace. And the last, the one, I know I already said the last thing, but one thing that's very important to note, and I know Gabe's laughing, is character. <laughs> and this is why the movie separates itself from other horror films. Because you actually have a sequence where the parents, Ethan Hawke, uh, is in a scene arguing with his wife about this. And that grounded nature makes the horror that more real. They're characters you actually care about. It's not just just made for horror, uh, uh, you know, haunted house type scares. Every scare is earned because you care and you give a crap about the characters who who are involved in these emotions. So that's why it hurts so much as an audience member. It's not... A pleasant experience. It's one of the. I would argue it is as scary, in my opinion, as The Shining and The Exorcist and The Descent. All right, it's yeah. on that level of horror. Am well, I, Jake? It's I know, hundred percent. I, I would say, I would say, in terms of like, don't get me wrong. I love The Shining. I love The Exorcist. I love those classic horror films. I don't find them particularly scary. Like you can love a horror film without finding it scary. Like the, the, the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. I find Sinister. To be genuinely terrifying, like you feel dirty genuinely after scary. you watch it. It's but like, not, you, but not in a Saw way. Yeah, like, so, well, like, Saw like is no emotion. Like, Saw is all yeah. about like the like. Oh, let's how, how cool can we kill somebody? Yeah, like this is actually this makes sense. What's yeah. going on? All right, after you watch Sinister on Netflix, you can skip over to Hulu and try The Lodge, um, a movie that that Kevin and I are both been talking about wanting to catch up with. It has former Real Blend host uh, Alicia Silverstone. Uh, uh, host, I'm sorry, guest yeah. Alicia Silverstone, uh, and that is now available on Hulu. Got really great reviews coming it's, out. It's of a, it's a circuit. thriller, right? It's a horror thriller. Horror, horror yeah, thriller? there's a yeah. horror movie yeah. element to it, so that's on I Hulu see that. right now. Uh, the Goldfinch is a movie that we probably can't recommend. Um, it exists, but, but you can uh, listen to our interview with John Crowley, the director, and his. Award-winning cinematographer Roger Deakins um, uh, on a previous episode 
of Real Blend. Uh, they talked a ton about uh, putting together some of the big sequences in that film. Uh, and now it is available. Today, by the way, guys. Good Tremendous lighting. lighting. Yes. Today. Well, you lit yeah. the whole room, essentially, yeah. instead of moving your... And no panning. Um, uh-uh. And The Goldfinch is available on Amazon Prime. Jakey, you saw Jerry Seinfeld's comedy 23 Hours to Kill. Uh, it is on I Netflix did. as of right now. And what do you have to say about it? You know, I, I love his style of comedy. Yeah. I, his style of... I mean, what, I mean it's essentially like... Seinfeld, like the, the sitcom Seinfeld, came from his mind and obviously Larry David's mind. And it's basically like looking around the world, like at everyday things and questioning like what bothers you? Like mm-hmm. what bugs you? What are the little things about life that annoy you? And so basically it's 45 minutes of him kind of just like bitching about things that bug him in the real world. And it's kind of funny. I, I like his like it, it's a very, like his style hasn't changed much. It's sort of like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, I, he's got that natural flow of things and there are moments where like he, he would point out things that, that bother him and I would pause and go, you know, he's right. Like that bothers me too. That's why Seinfeld <laughs> yeah. works yeah. so well, because yeah. it was all things that we experienced. Like, like that was, was so brilliant yeah, like, about the comedy. Like, what is it, isn't it called like observational humor where you just sort yeah. of look around and like where you notice yeah. things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he's great. I, I think he, there's a reason I think he is a, he's a stand-up legend and we haven't seen him do stand-up in, in quite a while. In fact, like I think a majority of like my stand-up experience with him has been those opening 30 seconds of every Seinfeld episode. Um, so it's really cool seeing him do it again. Um, obviously I, we were talking about earlier, I had the great pleasure of getting to chat with him very briefly um, for it. Which was awesome I, by the way. He was, he was, thank you. He was, he was very cool. And I saw um, uh, an interview with him today in which he said that like, this might be the last stand up special he ever does. And so it's like, you know, it's, you might as well, I mean, he might not do it again. So, you know, 45 minutes, it's, it's, it's cool to see him up there again. I'll in front of a crowd. He's in front of yeah. a crowd. See, yeah, no, I, I, think, I think he's still going to tour, but yeah. I don't think he's going to like record a special. Um, he, he said that like this, this might be the last special he ever records. Okay. So I, I'm also going to throw out a weird recommendation for this, that if you like stand-up comedy and you like listening to these guys who are experts at it, there's an HBO, um, episode of a show called talking funny. And it was a one-off and I, it's on YouTube. I know that much specifically because I'll go back and listen to it once every couple of months. It is Ricky Gervais. Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, and Louis C.K. And the four of them are just sitting around talking about their approaches to comedy. It is riveting um, just to hear their approaches to it. And it's about how much they appreciate each other's bits over the years and how Chris Rock will write a certain bit that the other guys could never write. Um, Or they could take a Louis C.K. bit but then if Seinfeld tried to do it, it would be completely different because yeah. it's it's the delivery. It's the emphasis of certain words. And as someone who writes for a living, I, I love listening to how they will stress specific words, you know, that are that are funny or not funny. And Seinfeld, Jake, when you talk about you have a question in, in your interview with Jerry where you say, like, how do you construct a joke that is still funny years later? You know, that you're not sitting in a specific time period and uh, you got your, that's a great question, first off, as a reference to that. But he talked about a joke that still bothers him to this day because he, it was one of his earliest, earliest jokes. And he talked about if they built um, roller coasters in uh, inner cities, in through like through Manhattan or through, 
And uh, he goes, when it when it dips down into the Bronx, which is a traditionally tough neighborhood, uh, that would be, he goes, it's the only roller coaster that's scariest when you're at the bottom, you know, <laughs> than when it's at the top. But he used the word ghetto when he said it. He goes, you know, when the train, when the roller coaster goes through the ghetto, it's the scariest. And he sa- he's saying now in this special, by using that word, it just dated it like the 70s, you know, like he knows now that it's not as funny because he has that line in the in the joke. And he's just like, oh, I hate it. I hate that I use that one word. And it's so funny that, like, they remember all the things mm-hmm. that stick to them and, uh, and, and how they and, apply uh, them to those things later. Also, like to that point, if you've never seen um, Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee, like the yeah. entire series, they produce new episodes for Netflix, but the original series is on there as well. Just amazing conversations about the crowd. And I, to me, there's nothing funnier than when Jerry starts laughing at when like the, the, whoever could, the, the guest is makes Jerry laugh. Yeah. Um, but there are some uh, the, one of my favorites was I think the guest was either the either the guest was Mel Brooks or, or Carl Reiner. And then as they were driving, let's say it was Mel Brooks. And as they were driving, Mel Brooks said, you know, on Thursday nights, I usually go over to Carl Reiner's house and we have TV dinners and watch TV. So we got to wrap this up. And then Jerry goes like, can I just go with you? And he goes, sure, come on. And so they go to Carl <laughs> Reiner's house and just sit and like they have they're like they're like little old men. They've got their like little like tray, like TV trays. And they're just eating and just like talk, just like I mean, but every classic comedian you could want does that series comedians and cars getting coffee. If you've never seen it, you can skip around. Obviously, there's no linear line to it. Um, it's truly ju- just amazing work. And he does he it. said he might be done with it now. Too. Yeah. Yeah. He said he might be done with it. And I, th- I think he has an episode with each. Seinfeld. I think he has one with uh, Michael Richards and Jason Alexander and Julia yeah. Louis-Dreyfus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has, yeah. yeah. That's great. It's a really good series. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, you saw Emma. Did you not catch up with no, Emma? No, I, I have not seen Emma. Lauren, my oh, wife okay. Lauren lo- loved it, but I have not oh, seen good. it. I heard okay. great yeah. things. I heard great things, too. And then Gabe wants us to point out a Netflix show called The Eddie. Um, don't know a whole heck of a lot about it yet. Uh, he was killing us into this before we got started, but a couple of episodes. It's a jazz show, right? Directed by Damien Chazelle. It is about a jazz club owner who deals with the everyday struggles of running a live music venue in Paris. So it's essentially that little portion from La La Land, uh, but blown up into a series. And that is reason enough for me to check it out. Oh, so I watched La La Land again on Friday because Lionsgate did this Lionsgate Live where Jamie Lee Curtis hosts uh, a free screening of something. And I I was curious to see how that was working in terms of the tech and, and what you need to do. And so Friday night I popped it on. And they were like half an hour into it kind of thing. And then I found myself just sitting there watching the entire movie all the way through to the end because it's just delightful. But that's cool that they're doing that. Um, They have John Wick coming up this next Friday. I'm pretty I'm pretty sure. But they're just making their Lionsgate movies available on Friday nights uh, starting at nine o'clock Eastern, six Pacific. And they put them up on their YouTube channel and you can just tune in. And they had an uh, intermission where Jamie Lee Curtis uh, threw it to uh, Nikki Novak, a friend of ours from the Junket oh, Circuit. Cool. And she was dressed in uh, Emma Stone's yellow dress from the from the outdoor uh, cocktail party when she runs into Ryan Reynolds, uh, Ryan Gosling, sorry, not Reynolds. And uh, it was cool. They, it was cool. They turned it into a little event and Damien did an intro and it was uh, it was it was very cool, but very, very fun. Um, so anyway, that's that's what's new in movies this week. Um, the Blend Game. So, we've been going through the underrated picks of the decades. Oh, God, I just looked ahead to next week's, Gabe. Are you kidding me? Oh, what is it? 
Well, I can't tell you now. I'll have oh. to tell you later. But I'm telling you, it just distracted me completely for this week's episode. Uh, underrated 2010s blend. Uh, you can go back and find our picks for um, all of the previous decades in the hashtag underrated, so in the fill-in-the-blank blend. And we made it all the way up to the final decade, uh, heading up to where we are right now. Underrated 2010s blend. I am going to go first and pick a, and it's strange to say this, but I am picking a Martin Scorsese movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio. And you would assume that every film that the two of them did together uh, is a huge mega blockbuster that is uh, crowded for all of the awards. And you would think of Wolf of Wall Street and The Departed and even The Aviator or Gangs of New York. And no one ever talks about what I think might be uh, top three Scorsese films uh, ever. Yeah, ever. Uh, it's and one of his best. That's Shutter Island. Shutter Island, for whatever reason, be, well, I mean, the reason being that the Scorsese-DiCaprio collaboration has <laughs> produced all the powerhouses that I just mentioned. Um, so this one gets overlooked or swept under the rug, and it's just so amazing. Um, and there's an element of it that I really love, which is the 1950s cinema I love 1950s, the aesthetic of 1950s cinema, regardless. Um, the private detectives with the with the hats and the trench coats, and I, I like that element. It's a great um, murder mystery, or a patient goes missing from uh, a psychological institute that's on an island off the coast of Boston. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Ruffalo are the t- detectives assigned to go there, uh, so they have to find out what happened to this missing patient. But what it does halfway through is you start to question whether the detective played by DiCaprio is um, sane and whether he's actually a detective or has he been a patient the whole time. So it starts to muddle with you. Uh, And then you, of course, the rest of the way through question uh, if everything that you've watched has been a hallucination of some way, shape or form. Uh, The atmosphere and the mood is incredible. Scorsese is just operating uh, on all the cylinders to create this incredible mood. Ruffalo's amazing. DiCaprio's amazing. Ben Kingsley's fantastic. Max von Sydow's fantastic. It dials into a fear that I've mentioned on the show before of where you're the sane guy and everyone around you thinks that you're crazy so you get imprisoned or or stuck in a hospital somewhere and nobody will listen to you even though you're the rational person. That's um, how I feel in this show. Yeah, as, as well you should. And it's uh, written by Dennis Lehane who is an incredible author who also wrote Mystic River, which is a better book than it is a movie, but also wrote those um, a series of terrific detective novels um, with Patrick and Angie, and I can't think of their last names, but they're the characters that um, Casey Affleck and Michelle Monaghan played in Gone Baby Gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gone Baby Gone is, is one entry in this terrific uh crime thriller uh, series these paperbacks are they, yeah. are they connected or is it are they all serial uh, they're relatively connected i mean each one's a new case M, right i'd have to dig back through and see yeah. uh but he's got five or six of them and they are great reads if you like gone baby gone you should be reading yeah. all of the mysteries with uh patrick and angie they just they're a great it's like blue collar, nasty Boston yeah. private detectives, you know, and it's just it's it, they're so much fun. And Lahane is a terrific author. And so uh, for all of those reasons, more people should be uh, celebrating the beauty of uh, Shutter Island. Although it's funny that you guys are talking about Sinister. There's a sequence at the end of Shutter Island where um, with DiCaprio and his children, his family. Yeah. yeah. And I won't give away anything in case you haven't seen it yet. 
but it was it's one of those moments in a theater where I almost had to get up and walk out because it was just it was too much. It was it was just too much. And it made sense in the context of the film. And I get where they were going for. But it was just like, all right. All right. I, I don't know how much more of this I can take. That, <laughs> it's that's actually the moment that I realized that DiCaprio is the best actor working today. Wow. Yeah. And I'll never forget seeing Shutter Island for the first time. And, and I had no idea that twist was coming. The twist in this film, which we won't give away. I don't think we have already. We, no, but, um, not yet. Is one of the greatest twists ever. So much so that Scorsese made two films, very much like Get Out and Us. When you watch Shutter Island for the second time and you see all the obvious clues as mm-hmm. to what really went down, you could see characters moving in certain ways, miming certain things, mouthing certain words. And they're all in there. Not yeah. just that, but I remember seeing I did I did I did the junket for Shutter Island, and I remember seeing the movie for the first time and thinking like, is Scorsese is Scorsese getting lazy? Because there yeah. are like massive continuity errors in this movie. Like yeah, yeah. like like glasses are in the wrong place, for, <laughs> you know. And then you go back and you go, oh. Yeah, that like, <laughs> like, like how like I almost felt guilty. Like, how dare I doubt Scorsese? How dare right. I think that he is getting lazy? And it's you know what? That's actually a great pick for an underrated movie, because I feel like if you were to go to a person and, and just like, let's say an average movie goer and say, what if I told you that Scorsese is about to make a horror movie with Leonardo DiCaprio? They would go like, oh, my God, I have to see this. And I go, what if I told you that movie came out 10 years ago? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can watch it right like, now. Yeah, you could watch it like it's out. It exists. And to your point, like. No, yeah, like, I think it did. I think I want to say it crossed a hundred million, but I still don't feel like it's underrated. That no one talks People about it. People dismiss yeah. it as yeah. like it, they dismiss it as like a, a, a lesser Scorsese yeah. one, and it's just, but also it's just not the music. Oh, you're in that me want to watch it. The music yeah. in that film, from what I remember, is all classical, real music. I don't think I don't think Shutter Island has an actual score. I think Shutter Island is just pure classical pieces of music. Double check that, but I'm almost certain. I remember when I reviewed the film, I was trying to figure out who did the music. I'm like, wait, this seems, this seems like it's. Okay. Cla- I think it's classical music. That wait, Gabe, have you never seen Shutter Island? Oh, oh, you have. You have okay. or have not? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, uh, Kevin, you're up. Oh, I went with a very similar film. Um, Pop star, never stop, never stopping. Mm, exactly <laughs> a very similar like it. film. <laughs> here's the thing i think this film's a masterpiece um i think it will forever be taken not seriously it will always be considered a spoof it will always be considered you know lonely island and i i think the one of the biggest tragedies of cinema is that we don't celebrate the brilliance of comedians um and i think that pop star is one of the smartest and well-written and well-produced and well-shot films just from what it's trying to achieve. Um, the performances, everyone fully commits. Every sing- Andy Samberg is firing on all cylinders as his character. <laughs> and the music is perfect. Every song is catchy. It's memorable. It speaks to the movie. It's raunchy, but also emotional. I, I-, I find that film to be re- um, oddly emotional. I care for the characters. I care. I've watched Pop Star 10 to 15 times, and I still root for them to get together at the end. That's really all I hope for. I want them to get on stage and see incredible thoughts of Michael Bolton. I just want that scene. <laughs> and they do it. And when they do the donkey roll with uh, with um, Usher, it's like one of my it's like it's what a great moment. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but I mean the the, the movie is just pure 
brilliant comedy. Um, I also think one of the funniest scenes in the history of movies is the is the um, sequence in the limo, which I really won't go into detail. No, about I'm what sorry. Happens. Could you could you refresh my memory? <laughs> Which, by the way, we apparently if someone's we have to ask Judd Apatow about that. Remember, that's that's the thing we, we would have to, to ask him. About. About. Yes, a hundred percent. That will get asked. So I bring up Pop Star because <laughs> who's going to ask? Them? <laughs> it's underrated because no one saw it. The movie bombed. Well, like, here's the funny famously thing: famously bombed. So when that came out, Andy Samberg's only really known for SNL at this right. point and the digital shorts that he was doing, which were very popular. But with his Brooklyn Nine-Nine following now, I almost yeah. wish they could re-release it because I think it would do much better now. Yeah, I'm telling you, I think Popstar is a film that is going to be revisited years from now as a brilliant comedy. Right. Um, and I, and I, I have a hard time explaining this film to people sometimes because it they go, wait, is that just a mockumentary about Justin Bieber? I'm like, no, it, it is such a smart character study. Of what it's like to be famous. Even the and title wh- itself is smart. Like even like the, the whole <laughs> yeah. like never stop, never stopping, I find yeah. to be very clever. But it also it, it is it is a commentary on our society at the same time about social media, about fame, about what we value. And I think all those things get lost sometimes in the grandeur, like raunchiness of hearing a bin Laden song or whatever songs happen to make their way to the to the audio and your speakers when you're watching the film. But there, you know, as the film opens and you hear I'm so humble and you see like the, you know, the Adam Levine hologram. I mean, the production <laughs> value on this movie and I think Gabe would agree should not be as good as it is. Like it is a gorgeously shot film. Like they made it look like he was actually in stadium tours. They nailed it. And the this song is great too. And it truly is. And, and underrated is an interesting term because I feel like I, I could have gone with um, so many other underrated films that have come out over the years that, you know, Shutter Island's a great pick. And I think Shutter Island at the end of the day is a film that I, I think that's a great, great pick because it's a masterpiece and it's a film that everyone should see. Pop Star, I don't know, is is it for everybody? I feel like it should be, but I feel like we're not at that stage yet where comedy is taken seriously. And until that happens, until we are able to actually understand the genius of how to write something like that, um, I think it's always going to be forever considered a joke. I think Pop Star is like a dismissed joke mockumentary that no one talks about. And I feel like over the years, like MacGruber, mm. the, these guys, the Lonely Island are brilliant minds. Akiva and Yorma, they, they directed this film. They're yeah. great directors. Uh, if you haven't seen Hot Rod, I highly recommend Hot Rod. It's another great comedy. But Popstar, I think, might be one of the most underrated comedies ever made. And I think it's definitely my most my favorite underrated movie of 2010s. Nice. Uh, good call. And it, it made $9.7 oh, at the box office. Right. And yeah. no one, you have to understand the commitment. Everyone in that film, like when they're interviewing Mariah Carey or Usher or DJ Khaled, everyone commits yeah. and nails it. it <laughs> everybody's on the same page. It is great filmmaking, but it will always be dismissed as just a joke. Yeah. All right, Jake. You're uh, underrated 2010s. My favorite underrated movie of the 2010s also made like $9.7 million, but unfortunately nice. it cost like $200 million. I know. Oh, it. Uh, I know. It. And that was a movie <laughs> called Cloud Atlas. Yes. Um, I love that movie. I, I think it is a, a I, I'm a big believer in um, like uh, butterfly effects and chaos theory and sort of kind of what we do in this life, having sort of a ripple and an echo um, not just in, in our own current life, but in, but in you know, lives down the road. Mm. And just this idea of six different stories intertwined 
I think it's one of the most beautifully edited films of all time. How like like say what you want to about this movie. How it didn't get an editing nomination. How this this movie over the course of three hours it interwove six different timelines and made it make sense mm-hmm. for three hours and no one acknowledged like the power of that editing blows my mind. But it's basically it's six different timelines throughout different periods of history dating back hundreds of years and then also moving forward hundreds of years. And every timeline has different characters, but all the characters are played by the same actors in every timeline. That alone is worth, which is incredible. Yeah. That's, and not just that, but like the actors play opposite races, opposite sexes. Like, like at, at one point, uh, I like Halle Berry plays a white Jewish woman. Um, at some point, I think like I think like a woman plays a man, a man plays a, like like they they kind of they 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 bring it together, and it's this idea of of um, it doesn't it's not specifically like pushing the idea of reincarnation, but it's just this idea of different lives and and the importance of you know being you know like the, the, your actions in this world potentially affecting people hundreds of years from now that you don't even know. And it's such a beautiful story that I am finding over the last 10 years or so um, since it came out has been discovered by more and more people. Um, I don't often come across someone that sees it. But when I do, I usually get a like, oh, my God, that movie was great. Mm-hmm. It was I, I saw it. I want to say I went and saw it three times in theaters. I did the junket. I went to a screening and then I think I paid to go see it because of how poorly it was doing at the box office. I wanted to support it. I think it's a beautiful film. I think it's actually one of Tom Hanks's best film. It's um, it's got three different directors. Um, well, so Wachowski's and the Tom Wachowski, Tickler, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's such a ballsy accomplishment, and I think that they pulled it off because, in fact, because it, it's based on a book. But the way the book is structured, it it's it doesn't intertwine the the stories like that. It goes six five four three two one two three four five six. Oh. And so oh, wow. it's a little easier to keep track of. And the fact that they took that, undid this puzzle, and then put it back together in their own way, I think is so unbelievably impressive. It's an amazing piece of writing, an amazing piece of acting, an amazing piece of storytelling. One of the most beautifully constructed, told films of all time. And I think it not only is it unbelievably over uh, underrated because it massively bombed at the box office, um, but I, I think it's um, I, I, I'm loving that more and more slowly, more and more people are discovering it. It's yeah, Jake and I's choices bombed like famously, like yeah. like <laughs> just like like bombed. ugly, ugly bombs, nasty bombs. Like these were like bad bombs. But even <laughs> like, hearing no Jake went. talk about um, the themes that are in Cloud Atlas, it's very Lindelofian, and it's very oh, after 100%. you made me watch Leftovers. Sense. Yes, you know I could see how. You sort of just dial into that type of material. And so there you go. Three recommendations for films that if you haven't yet seen them, you need to put them into your queue almost instantly. I have not seen Popstar. Never Stop, Never Stopping, even though I have it downstairs. Uh, I did see Cloud Atlas. I thought that was pretty great. So you guys need to catch up on those. Uh, Listener picks. Let's see. Reckoner0308 says Incendies. That's a tough film to get through, man. That is a heavy, heavy film. I don't know what that is. Incendies is... um, I'll tell you. I'll tell you about it afterwards. Um, Dante oh, wow. says, "Inside Lewin Davis, um, oh, underrated Coen Brothers, uh, without a doubt." Michelle Garrist says, "Hunt for the Wilder People, early Taika Waititi." Uh, Chris Castellani says, "The Way Way Back, great choice." Sam Rockwell, that's an amazing film. Oh, yeah. Steve Carell is such a dick in that. Carell's in that. I forget. Yeah, isn't he? Isn't he like the really mean stepfather? 
Oh, is yeah. he really? That's right. That's right. Are you guys going to watch the Corel uh, Space Force? It looks I didn't awesome. think the trailer. See, I didn't think the trailer looked that great. Oh, I'm excited about Space Force. I, 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 I like. I, I, I think, think it was I cool. like what I'll it's making try. fun of more than. I mean, I, I'm gonna. It's Greg Daniels. It's the guy that did The Office, and it's Steve yeah, Carell. Yeah. So I'm, I'm gonna. But I, I like the idea of it more than. What Could be I a bad saw. trailer. Could be a bad yeah, trailer. Yeah, I hope that it's a bad trailer because sometimes yeah. comedy cut out of context is weird. All right, and um, Jansen Hardage says Edge of Tomorrow. A terrific, great pick. answer. That's I saw there. There was someone else, and pick. I think a couple of people chose this, but it's a. I think it's also a great pick. The Place Beyond the Pines. Eh, I hate that a, movie. Do now you the Place really? Beyond the Pines is actually very similar, Jake, to the storytelling you have in Cloud Atlas. Oh, 100%. Yeah, three storylines, yeah. But but Place Beyond the Pines was more like story one, story two, story three. Very right. much the idea of actions having ripple effects. Right. Um, but no, Let I me love s- Place Beyond the Pines. I'm going to stop for one second here because I, 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 I'm not the kind of person to do this and go, wait, you haven't seen this movie, but Sean... The Place Beyond the Pines is a masterpiece. Like, Derek C. in France, like, it is... The, the opening shot of that movie, there's a there's a oneer that takes place. And I, I actually, I, I want our listeners to see if they can find it. There's a oneer in the beginning of uh, of the film that it's is Gosling's so... Wonder? It's, it's Gosling. Okay. Gosling's wearing a Metallica yeah, yeah. shirt. He's getting ready to go. Oh, you have or have not seen I've Beyond seen the it. Pines? Yeah, oh, yeah. I thought you, I thought you, oh, you don't I like I don't Beyond like the it. Pines. I okay. don't like it. Sorry. I apologize. So the opening shot, though, is he gets on that, you know, that motorbike and goes yeah. into that cage. yeah, yeah. Try and figure out how they how they did that because it's, incre- it, it's actually incredible. It's not Gosling in the cage. They somehow oh, really? switched him out. Oh yeah, okay. I, the I remember. Um, I give I him pulled, a lot of credit. I just assumed he did it. <laughs> so I, I remember. I think I pulled Ryan Gosling aside, and I and I don't mean his name drop, but I was. I, it was it was in Los Angeles for um. There was some Oscar thing happening at the hotel I was staying at, and I went downstairs, and they were having like a first man event in the lobby. Oh, interesting. This is normal for L.A. I know it doesn't sound normal, but it's normal for Los Angeles. Like, it's not like, you know, I'm just going to parties all the time. Um, So I walk in and, you know, the the cast is walking around. And I think this was the night that I pulled him aside and I asked him, like, do you mind if I ask you about how you did the the bike scene in the movie? It's interesting. If you watch the scene closely, the, the camera does go off of him at one point. So what they do is they switch the rider in the shot. Okay. All in the same shot. So the rider who enters the cage is not Gosling. Okay. See if you can figure out where they do it, though. Interesting. Because I've I've tried watching it a few times, and I it kind of makes sense if you think about the timing of when they go away from him and when they come back to him. But it's probably one of the most beautifully executed wonders that has always amazed me as to how it was done. Because I just don't because I was like, there's no way Ryan Gosling is doing that. And there was a time where I actually believed it was him. And I was like, maybe he just trained to do it. It's like you believed that Army Hammer was twins. Speaking of such, uh, can we talk about our commentary track, Gabe? I enjoyed that. Yeah, we can talk about it. So we recorded a commentary track. Um, I'm not sure when it's going to go live, Um, but type it down here uh, so that I can... No, don't type it down here. Wait, wait, Gabe, 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 you could actually send Sean that information through the social network right now. Ah, so we did... Here, here, I'll just... Hi, I'll just hop on the show. How about that? Whoa. And because of the social I mean, the commentary network, track, it makes sense. Yeah. No, I was trying to tell you to look down right. because there's plugs at the end of the show and it give, and you can reveal gotcha. the date. Gotcha, gotcha, <laughs> gotcha. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, so Friday. It's supposed to drop Friday. Excellent. And we did David Fincher's yes. The Social Network because that was what everybody voted on. And we had a total blast doing it. Like, all four of us did it. Uh, it, to me, went by in about 15 minutes. Like, 
we I had remember a lot of really like fun looking to see and, how much time was left in the movie, thinking we probably got like an hour and a half left to go, and we had 15 minutes left. Like that's <laughs> so that's is, how fast it went by. Yeah. Is there any way we could do a commentary for Pop Star? I think that would be a might be my first time watching it. The people have to vote. I think yes. the Lonely Island guys would love that. I think that'd be so awesome if we did it because that's a niche movie that no one saw. Like, as, like as, which is why I put it in the underrated. And, but there is a strong fan base for it. Um, anyway, well, I think oh, it would even be fun if we started doing commentary tracks and got some other people involved in them. Yeah. Like, yeah. I also got to show. I mean, this is we'll the see. greatest like that's, DVD. That's cover so funny of, if you know the if you know the and, movie and the scene that's on the cover is the scene you don't even see in the film, which is hilarious, like, because they cut away from it. It's so good. All right. So anyway, uh, next week's game. Are you guys ready? Whew. We're playing hashtag Coen Brothers Blend. No. Have we never uh, done that before? I think we did Coen's best, but okay. I don't think we did Coen's favorite. Favorite? So we can... Interesting. Now we get to isolate our favorite Joel and Ethan Coen uh, game by playing hashtag Coen Brothers Blend. Also, a reminder, go back and listen to our interview with Barry Sonnenfeld. Uh, he came up came up with the Coen brothers during some of their early, most formative years and has amazing stories to tell. Um, reviews. Every once in a while, you guys will send us really nice reviews via um, RealBlend at CinemaBlend.com or even on the iTunes page, and we read them at the end of the show. And this one comes from One That Is, and the subject line is The Lost World. And they say, that story made me tear up at how amazing that experience must have been. This is Jake telling his uh, theater experience blend where his mom pulled him out of school to go see uh, Steven Spielberg's The Lost World and gave the metaphorical middle finger at Jake's uh, instructor for preventing him from reading Michael Crichton's great work. And the one that is went on to say, uh, I also was reading that book in grade school and I saw curse words. I went to a private Lutheran school and my teacher also took the book from me. She put it in her desk after school. I snuck it out of her desk and she always hated me after because she knew (laughs) I still love that movie, too. My theater experience is The Matrix. I had the newspaper double sheet on my wall before the film even came out. I had to convince my mom to take me because of the R rating, but I researched it, and it wasn't for gore or blood or anything violence, yada yada. Blown away. Anyway, love the show. Keep it up. Uh, that is from The One That Is. So, very cool. I, lo- I did, Listen, the feedback we got from the movie theater experiences stories was... Was really strong. People mm-hmm. dug the, the that was one of my all time favorites uh, blend games that we played. It, it was a really good one, and so um, I'm going to challenge us to to keep coming up with uh, personal stories because I think the three of us have plenty of them, and uh, if we can share a few of those uh, over the uh, course of the next few episodes, uh, hopefully we'll get some great reviews like that one. So thank you very much for sending that over. Okay, That's awesome. uh, plug the shirt. I'm going to plug the shirt one final time. It is available until May eighth. Uh, go to the link in the description down below. Help out an amazing charity, the Will Rogers Foundation. All of the proceeds, uh, so so a small portion of it goes to pay for the shirt. Everything else goes to Will Rogers. We've been over to uh, we've been able to raise north of twelve hundred dollars already uh, in support of the foundation. We cannot thank you guys enough for that amazing support. And once the t-shirts start going out, we want to make sure you guys send us pictures uh, of you guys wearing the shirt. Okay, the social network commentary that we recorded is going to be available on Friday. It's our hope that you guys will download that. 
that. Um, and then you can play the movie on Netflix and then just listen to the four of us talk over it. And we, um, I think we have a lot of really fun things to share for it. And uh, we'll start thinking about some other films that we can do for commentaries after the case. So until then, follow us on our own social network channels uh, at Jake's Takes at Kevin McCarthy TV and at Sean underscore O'Connell. Give them all follows on their YouTube channels and their Instagrams as well, too. Leave us a review on iTunes. It means an awful lot to us. Or send us a review at realblend.cinemablend.com. And we'll be back next week with even more fun, hopefully some exciting guests, uh, breaking news, updates on when Tenant is going to be coming to theaters, uh, and uh, maybe we'll get a chance to interview Christopher Nolan somehow. I'm just putting it out there into the universe to see if uh, if uh, God himself, Chris Nolan, will make that happen. So until next week, Tenet and Dunkirk. And Dunkirk. But mostly Tenet. But, yeah. But also Dunkirk. Yes. Right? Of course. Always. Tenet, too. Can we add Tenet? But then Dunkirk. <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.